Welcome everyone to Dobbler's Fingers episode 63, The North Remembers. I'm Scatty and with me as always is my buddy Matt. Good evening ladies and gents. We are going to have a good episode tonight. We're covering, of course, A Feast for Dragons and... A Feast for Dragons. <laughs> that is what we're doing. A Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons. We're reading them in tandem. Special reading order as you guys are already familiar with. Uh, that's called Feast for Dragons. It was developed by Game of Owns, and full credit to them on putting all of it together. It's been a great reread so far for us. Uh, you can find that reading on order at uh, feastfordragons.com, or you can find it at our website, doublesfingers.com. The block of chapters that we are covering today is John 6 and Davos 4 from A Dance with Dragons. And then from Feast, we're reading Jamie 4, Brienne 6, and Cersei 7. It's funny how they... Uh, it seems like George is tending to put these Jamie, Brienne, and Cersei chapters close together. Have you noticed that? Yes. They're uh, always like one around the other or something like that. They they do seem to be. And uh, I think Cersei might be the leading POV in in Feast, or at least it feels that way. Um, she's at, as you mentioned, Cersei 7 now. Um, so mm-hmm. maybe everything sound, seems near Cersei's chapters, <laughs> but, but yeah, they do kind of, they do seem to kind of come together. I don't, I don't remember feeling that way in previous reads, but it feels that way here for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so let's just jump into some announcements. Uh, first of all, total, uh, shameless plug. I haven't talked about my sister's comics in a while, but, uh, something dear and dear to my heart released this month, two issues now have released in this uh, mini-run she's doing for Captain Phasma. That's right. Uh, she's writing for uh, for Marvel slash Star Wars. Uh, and if you're interested in what happened to Captain Phasma right after she got put in the uh, trash compactor, give it a look. It's just a, a, a limited series <laughs> run she's, give, she's doing right now. And just speaking from my perspective... Captain Phasma is not at all the person I kind of figured she was, um, and you you definitely get a sense of that uh, in in this in this comic run. So check it out; it's pretty sweet. And I believe we just got a book released about her, or if not, now it's coming soon or something like that. No, I it's paid too close attention. It's out. Yeah, it's out, and uh, I haven't read it, but according to Kelly, she got some sort of advance. Um, I think kind of like release note structure at least kind of to give her the the bullet points so yeah. she know what not to what not to do right to like cause conflicts yep. in the storytelling and uh I I got the sense from her she didn't tell me much but I got the sense from her that it was her earlier life is what the book is about um and so you know the the comic series here runs from right after Force Awakens you know the book is more about her earlier life so definitely something I want to check out uh, at some point when we get a breather from this. <laughs> They're running this character hard, aren't they? They're amping her up. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like with Force Awakens, there was some disappointment with her usage. Um, you know, it'll be inter- interesting to see where this comic finishes up and how that then ties into what she's doing in the next, uh, you know, in the next film. Indeed. Because, you know, it's interesting. They can't, they can't assume that everyone's going to read the comic, so they have to give enough backstory to her showing up to be like, oh yeah, escaped the trash compactor, eh? Or something, uh, if she shows mm-hmm. up in the film. But it'd be interesting to see how they tie that all in. 
Indeed. Well, we are Kelly Thompson fans around these parts. Absolutely. Uh, maybe, maybe while we're waiting for new Song of Ice and Fire books to come out, we can start a Kelly Thompson podcast or something. <laughs> uh, I'm sure she'd appreciate it. Uh, I'm sure she'd love it. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Speaking of maybe episodes that don't revolve around our normal structure, yeah. we did just release our Patreon episode last week. Right, early last week, something like that. I did, and um, it went. It was a lot of fun. It ended up being a little bit longer than we thought it would. We went about the length of one of these episodes, about two and a half hours. Yeah, and we were talking about different uh, parenting styles in Westeros, and and focusing on specific parents, like the Edard and Cat, and Hoster and Manissa, and. Oh, who else? Doran and and Malario and Davos and I don't remember who else. Tywin and Joanna. There's one Mace, more I'm missing. Mace I might as well just go the distance. Mason, Allery, Tyrell, yes, uh, and uh, talking about how they influence their children and and all of that. So if you want to, you can check that out at Patreon.com/slash/DavosFingers. Um, it's made available to patrons at our what level? Team John level, something like it's that. It's the Don't six dollar level. Uh, I can't remember which which name that is now. Sadly, that that one. So yep. We also did some fun trivia on it. Uh, that was a blast to do as well. So it was it was fun trivia. Yeah, so check that out. Um, okay, uh, and lastly, just a a quick note. George, uh, the scion of literature uh, that we all worship, <laughs> uh, at whose altar we all worship. Had a birthday uh, just uh, earlier last week there. I turned 69. 69, dude. 69. <laughs> <laughs> so happy birthday, George. Uh, thanks for all the writing you do, the world you've created, the effort you put in. Uh, hope you had a great birthday. You are the man. I mean, the cynical side of me wants to be like, oh, great, one year closer to dying without finishing the books. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> That's not nice. That's uh, what I said, the cynical side. Yeah. We've all got that one side of us, the Louis C.K. thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, we do. But no, no. He's the man. He is. Uh, so, the reason we are here. Indeed. Uh, I think that's it for announcements. Uh, just want to remind you, we are spoiler-free. That means we like to cover these chapters at the pace we're reading them and not spoil and give away too much during the main run of the podcast here. But we do have a special segment at the end called Davos After Dark. In which we'll get all uh, get into all the spoilers and theories and, and stuff like that. So stick around if you're into that sort of thing, or turn it off if you are not. Um, but uh, we'll we'll try not to spoil things during during the run of the podcast until then. Keyword is try. Yeah. And uh, if you want to talk, you know where to find us. You can at doublesfingers.com us. You'll find us there. Email we are doublesfingers at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at Davos Fingers. We're also on Facebook. And uh, as I mentioned before, Patreon. If you want to learn more about the program that we're running there, that's patreon.com slash Davos Fingers. Yeah, and if you've sent an email recently, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've been a little bit busy with the special episode preparation and everything that we were doing, but uh, I'll be getting to those pretty soon here. So sorry if, if you haven't heard from me. All right. Let's jump on in then. Uh, it's John and it's me. You ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Where well, we're going up north where the winter's cold and the icicles bloom like the bluest rose. We haven't met his mom, but we love his wolf. He's John Snow. 
John sends nine Black Brothers off on a ranging. Eight good men and one Alistair Thorne in need of some redemption. Thorne bristles at the command at first, but remembering his friend Slint's end, submits to his fate. As John watches from atop the wall, he struggles with sending these three groups of three, knowing what happened on previous rangings. But he is sending good, experienced men that know what they're doing out there. They've got the skills to survive. And he needs eyes out there in the woods, man. He doesn't know what's going on. There's all sorts of reports coming on camps and movement of the free folk by Cotter Pike and Dennis Malister. And John just feels like he needs some more information about what's going on out there. So, uh, he takes the cage down, emerges in the yard, uh, and he hears the men training with Iron Emmett, Emmett and decides to go have a, have a nice little session of his own. A three-on-one session. He mostly makes short work of them before Rattleshirt chimes in, challenging him to a fight with a real man. John, kind of surprising to me, accepts. Rattleshirt, clad in steel and eschewing a shield for a two-handed greatsword, proves a formidable foe. He is quicker, bigger, and stronger than John suspects, and has John given, giving ground with a shield flung to the ground in pieces. John has one last chance to do something before Rattleshirt does some real damage with an overhead slash, and he does so, recklessly hurling his body at Rattleshirt, taking them both to the ground in a heap of tangled steel. Rattleshirt comes out on top, though, John's head in his hands, and he slams it against the ground before opening John's visor and threatening to take out his eyes if only he had a knife. Boy, that escalated quickly. Rattleshirt is dragged atop from atop John. Well fought, says John, as he spits out blood and finds his feet. He's remembering his lessons, that there's always someone quicker and stronger, and it's better to face them in the training yard before you face his like in battle. Then he's interrupted by Clytus. There's been a raven. It bears the pink wax of House Bolton, and John reads it immediately in the yard. Information we already know. Moat Kalin is taken. The ironborn that held it flayed and nailed to posts along the road. And all northern lords are summoned to Barrowtown to swear fealty and celebrate Ramsay's marriage to... Dun-dun-dun. Arya Stark. Later that night, John walks the yard at Castle Black, restless... Thinking of Arya, his vows, Needle, he pets Ghost and immediately becomes aware that someone is following him. Egret. Nay, Melisander. Mel goes full profit on John, indicating that his sister will come to him, dressed in grey on a dying horse, fleeing this forced marriage. She has seen it in her fires. Also, Ghost trusts Mel, so there is that. Ghost nuzzles her hand and refuses to come back to John as if under Mel's power. She also tells John again that there is power at the wall, power in Ghost, and power in John himself. He just needs to use it. And how would I do that? Make a baby with me. Okay, she doesn't explicitly say that, but pretty close. She wants John to give himself to her. That man. She, she mentions that man and woman can join, make life, make light, cast shadows. It's creepy sexy. John is skeptical, though. He's heard that sorcery is a sword without a hilt. Mel doesn't deny that, just reminding him that still, sometimes one needs a sword. In order to combat his stolid skepticism, she tells him that three of his nine riders will return dead and blinded. When they return to you, believe in me, she tells him. Take my hand and let me save your sister. And that is where the chapter ends. Yeah, kind of kind of uh, three acts. Um, the first act very short in which he is uh, 
you know, sends these men on this ranging to gather more intel. Uh, the second act where he's training in the yard and uh, getting beaten and learns of this, this information about the, the proposed wedding of Ramsey and Arya. And then the third act where he walks around and gets counseled by Mel uh, with some mm-hmm. profiting going on. So uh, I guess I'd just like to start with the ranging. Nine more rangers sent off. We've seen, we've seen how awful this ends up in the past. What do you think? Oh, well, first of all, Alistair Thorne is quite the wuss, isn't he? <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's, kind of, uh, it's kind of interesting. You know, it, clearly he's experienced. He's uh, a good fighter. But they make it sound a little bit in the chapter like he's never been beyond the wall almost. Like he's just kind of always been in the yard training the boys and can't handle himself or something. Yeah. Dywin's all about getting back out there. He's all sorts of excited. He of the metal teeth on the wall, or of the yeah. wooden teeth, rather wood. Yeah, and then old, then old brother Thorn. Yeah, he's just not having it. <laughs> uh, those who can't do teach, isn't that what the saying is? Oh, Some, I'm just yeah. defending all sorts of people today. <laughs> <laughs> so, just something. kidding to all you to all you teachers out there. <laughs> hey man, Aowen's a teacher, no. so watch it. Uh, so, but yeah, I do I, get the impression that he uh, that that he he spent a lot of time training recruits, and that was kind of his job. Yeah. So, does it would that make would that have made him a steward then? That's what I'm kind of guessing he is. But uh, yeah, I don't really know. Get, I don't know that we ever learn Alistair's, um role in the Night's Watch. But. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like he was. Um, I mean, just he was a warrior. Yeah, some quick some quick history on Alistair Thorne. Uh, he was sent to the Wall. You know, he had the mm-hmm. choice to go to the Wall or, or basically be killed. Um, he was part of the uh, a part of the what was it the Targaryen supporters that uh, that he was yep. a part of, and then yeah, and Robert gave him the choice to go to the Wall, and he did. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, but but he was a warrior. He was a fighter, a knight. Um, so he's you know he's probably reasonably skilled with a blade so he's not like incapable but maybe if it's possible soft for a black brother maybe like you know what i mean oh yeah i think there's no questioning that that he's uh he knows how to handle himself with the sword he's the master at arms i do remember that um but uh but yeah and and just you know when you just haven't gone out for a while when you just get rusty and I think that might be what it is for him. He probably resigned himself to the fact that he's going to be the master at arms until he dies. And yeah. he became reasonably comfortable with that position. Yeah. And never envisioned himself having to go beyond the wall, much less going beyond the wall when rangers are not coming back. And so, yeah, I understand he's a little bit scared. But, dude, come on. It was some pretty... Uh, shameful complaining you were doing there you know this is interesting i didn't expect we'd go this route but the way you've described this is has looked has made me look at this in a little bit of a different way you know sometimes like people get painted into a corner and they get painted not painted i mean they kind of paint themselves into the corner really he's painted himself into this corner of you know being against john and uh you know this kind of whiner and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna agree kind of like a grumpy bear kind of a, a stance and he's in this rut of being stuck there. And this is an opportunity for him to get away, 
to reset and to provide some real value. And sometimes people need that. And maybe he'll just yeah. he'll get out there and he'll latch onto it and he'll do something valuable and be able to kind of redeem himself and be able to come back to the wall with his head high, you know, and kind of reset himself a little bit. It'd be cool. Yeah. Or come back with blue eyes. Or, yep, or that. We'll see. <laughs> be interesting to see where George takes this one. All right. Um, okay, so uh, let's talk Mel. Should we talk Mel? Let's talk Mel. Has she moved on from Stan here? I mean, she's putting the full court press on John for something. Yeah, I I would agree with you. It seems pretty obvious uh, that she wants to make some shadow babies yeah. with John. And I don't think she feels any particular emotional attachment to Stannis in the sense of um, monogamy, as it were. Uh, I I think that she wants to go where the power resides, and she senses some power in John to affect some great big happenings. And so, uh, yeah, I think she's going to go where the power is. Does she still think Stannis is Azora High? I think she probably does. But in the meantime, she needs to make something happen, and John has the power to help her make that happen. <sighs> I don't want to skate too near this, but but why does she sense that? I mean, what about John gives her the sense? I mean, there are hundreds of guys there that she could pick. And John's cool, and he's got a great accent and a cool wolf and everything, and maybe she sees the skin changing or something, but it's just a little weird. She's been She's been all on the Stannis train from day one, and then this is a full court Dana Zool gatekeeper keymaster press. It feels like to me. Um, oh, for sure. And it felt I was very, very surprised by it the first time I read it, <laughs> and even surprised this time because I think I'd forgotten Wouldn't how it? forward she was. Wouldn't it be great if we had a Melisandre POV? Uh, we're about. <laughs> I think we're about to get one. <laughs> uh, no, but I think I, I didn't find myself quite as surprised. Um, you notice that she's not calling John the Lord of Light, or no. she's not she's not prophesying that he's the new Azor High or anything like that. Nope. I liked the Ghostbusters reference; very nice, good, nice. <laughs> very good. But uh, she sees, yeah. What does she see in him? I don't know, but she definitely sees some sort of power in him. Uh, we know that there's some inherent powers. Which of that Mel is able to decipher? I don't. I don't know. Um, but and, you know, maybe it's not some certain magical ability. Maybe it's John's uh, strength of character or something like that. He does have quite the iron will, similar to Stannis in in some ways, in that he sets himself on a course and. Gosh, he hasn't deviated from it yet, uh, despite everything Bowen Marsh might be saying to him. So, uh, you know, maybe it has something to do with that. Yeah. Well, let me tell you this. If I were to ever be unfaithful to Eowyn, I think it would be <laughs> some sort of magic dark sexiness that would work on me. Because this is Not some we-can-control-the-world-together kind of power, and that's that's kind of hot. <laughs> no? Alright. Uh, Just me? Yeah. yeah. Alright. 
Yeah. All right. <laughs> On that note, so <laughs> here's her. Here's what. Here's what she says to him. The Lord of Light. This was her. This was her pitch. This was her full court press. The Lord of Light and His wisdom made us male and female, two parts of a greater whole. In our joining, there is power. Power to make life. Power to make light. Power to cast shadows. That's the exact line I used on my wife. Yeah. Well done. It worked. Uh, It's, it's, (laughs) go ahead. Uh, uh, This is just silly. I found, so in terms of romantic lines, I went and found some of my favorite lines from songs that I thought might be better suited than what Melisandre gave. I wish I could have given her these little tips before she came on to John and maybe it would have helped. Mm hmm. So. Um, uh, classic Bob Dylan song. I could make you happy, make your dreams come true. There's nothing that I wouldn't do. Go to the ends of the earth for you to make you feel my love. Come on, Melisandre. That's an easy one. That's a Billy Joel song, man. Sorry. Written by Bob Dylan. I know. Yeah. Just giving you a hard time. Uh, but that's... Thank you. Garth Brooks covered it. I think Brian McKnight's done it. So, come on. The song's out there, man. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, I had a version of that song out there somewhere. Everyone's covered you it. You probably do. Yeah. We've got the more popular song out right now. Old John Legend, Give Your All to Me. I'll Give My All to You. You're my end and my beginning. Even when I lose, I'm winning. Come on, Mel. You could have gone that route. Uh... Let's see. I want you... You could just go on this route with Bob Dylan. Sometimes he's poetic, and sometimes you just get straight Direct. to the point. Yeah. I want you. I want you. I want you. I want you so bad. I want you. I want you. I want you so bad. Honey, I want you. What's wrong with that one? Come on, Mel. There's options out there. There's lots of options out there, but I think is she, I, I, it's a weird pitch, but it it almost speaks to none of what you're talking about, which is, it's not about any of that. It's just, she wants, there's power in union of flesh and that's it. Babies. Yeah. Babies. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I mean, the more I think about it, it is, it is Zool and Dana. It's, Mm -hmm. it's just this cosmic melding that she's after and. And unfortunately, she's picked a man that is so grounded <laughs> to woo that it's, it, <laughs> it's just it's not even it's not even it's not even pleasure that she wants. No, it's just it's exactly it's what power. You're yeah, yeah. To create some weird dark magic. Do you want this body? Is this a trick question? I guess the roses worked, huh? Take me now. Subcreature. We never talk anymore. I mean, I, I don't think she's speaking. I, I guess, I guess that's part of the takeaways. I don't, I don't know if she's speaking specifically of she and John or just the power of flesh in general. Interesting question mm-hmm. to take take with us. All right. Yeah, I think the reason that she is coming after John though is indicative of some special quality that he has, and that she couldn't just go grab any brother of the Night's Watch and yeah. And get things going. So there's something. And John clearly does have see. something. I mean, we see it in this chapter. Absolutely. He's Absolutely. he uh skin changes ghost with a touch. Uh with just the brush of a hand. It's just a, a subtle little thing George does where he like he pets him and all of a sudden the smells of the yard come alive, right? And um mm-hmm. that's right before he turns around and sees Mel. Um 
So yeah, I mean, she senses she senses that power. Maybe don't know. Okay, uh, rattle shirt. It's a weird scene with rattle shirt. I mean, uh, maybe rattle shirt has rage issues. I guess it's not that hard to understand why he would want to fight John. Has a lot of pent up anger at him. A little surprised that the guys in the yard let it happen for as long as they do. <laughs> So here comes the cynical side of me uh-huh. again. Gosh, gosh, maybe the sickness just brought me down a few notches. And now I'm just all like, I'm just all curmudgeon uh, Feel it flow through you. Feel it. <laughs> but a part of me was like, he he gets into the yard whenever he wants to. And he's like, send your best three men after me. And he proceeds to kick their butts. And it seems like he does this with some sort of regularity. I wonder if some of them were just like, yeah, let him get his butt kicked a little bit. His... Yeah, right. <laughs> Look at this guy. Not so yeah. tough now. We're fighting the recruits. Huh? 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 Yeah. Let him get trashed a little bit. Emric and whoever else is, whatever those guys' names are, Jace, are just like sitting there kind of smirking behind his back. His rattle shirt kicks his trash. Hop Robin. No, it's probably not that. It's probably not that. You know, it's a it's a hard culture where guys are tough and they're supposed to run into each other and get beat up a little bit and all that stuff. So, you know. Yeah. I think that's what kept him going. But he did almost get killed. I mean, Rattleshirt had him on the ropes there. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think I've only got one and a half more things. The, the half is... There's a an interesting little snowflake bit. It's a whole paragraph where he's going yeah. down the gate and the snowflake keeps kind of going in and out of his view and brushing back up through the wind past the cage and Yep. Kind of follows it down. You got down anything on this? I thought about this for a good ten minutes and got nothing. You know, as I <laughs> I did and I didn't because it stuck out to me as I read it and I was like, there's a metaphor in yeah. this thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm like He's saying something. If I was just I was like, not nah. so dense to not be able to receive it. I was like, well, I'll think about it later. And I didn't write it down. I didn't highlight the passage like I normally do. Yeah. And here I am remembering it as you bring it up now. Yeah. So. All right. We got nothing. Kalisar, you got something on the snowflake metaphor? We bet there's something there. You there tell us. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay. The last thing then is... Uh, I don't have a sister. Uh, this conflict is crazy. Can you, I mean, can you imagine just trying to completely forget your family? Mm. So he receives this letter. He receives this letter where his sister is, you know, going to be marrying Ramsey Snow. Ramsey Bolton, sorry, at this point. Uh, and his response is, I don't have a sister. I only have brothers. Right, and yet we know he goes. He goes off and thinks about nothing else all night, so it's it's eating him up inside. Um, but man, rough. Yeah, easier said than done, uh, especially for a family that was as tight knit at night tight knit as the Starks. And I know that John was always considered kind of an outsider, but you know he had, did have that very special relationship with Arya, and those aren't things you you can easily leave behind. Um, John has done a great job of finding a family at the wall. Uh, my favorite line from the whole chapter was every name, uh, referring to the Black Brothers, every name was graven on his heart. Mm-hmm. Right? He cares about every last one of them. Um, 
and and it's I think that's an that emotional attachment combined with kind of a steely resolve that John has yeah. that uh, makes him such an effective leader and in person that yeah. people want to follow. It's you know it's interesting. It's I, I didn't even think about it uh, until until just now. It's nine people he sent off. I was watching The West Wing uh, this week, and there's an episode where uh, he where the president President Bartlett in this fictional universe sends off a, a, a military mission. A, 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 a chopper gets shot down, and nine people die. Nine exactly, and same kind of weariness. These these kinds of these decisions just weigh on him, and you can see it. And when they come back dead, it's just etched on him forever. And probably influences his policy going forward, right? There's a cost. There's a cost. Yeah. Okay, Uh, I don't have anything else in this chapter. You got anything else? Nope, let's move on. All right, let's do it. Uh, We're going to move on to uh, a special Ask the Fingers. Uh, So we do this, some of our patron levels allow, allow people to... Ask us questions. Uh, they can be about the series. They can be about our personal lives. They can be about whatever they want. So we got a, a few of those sprinkled into the episode tonight. Uh, the question this one comes from Tana. And uh, it is, what subtle but nagging question are you hoping gets answered in wins? And uh, I don't know. Matt, you want to go first? Sure. This is subtle in the text of the books, uh, but I think it actually has rather large implications. But the one I'm looking forward to is the um, contents as well as the carriers of Rob Stark's will. Mm. That's very fascinating to me. He affixed his seal um, not too long before his death uh, to a will saying who he wanted to name as his heir as well as perhaps some other instructions, but that's the big thing. Who is going to be Rob Stark's heir as King in the North? And then he, of course, sent that off with uh, Galbert Glover and Mage Mormont, copies of the will, and sent them off into the neck to contact Howland Reed uh, and and to uh, uh, keep that will safe and also to, um, you know, start things moving or keep things going in the North, as it were, keep kind of the Stark legacy going in strong and and doing whatever they got to do. And I'm very fascinated in finding out what was in that will, who was the heir. I think we've all got our ideas. And also whether uh, Glover and or Mormont were able to make contact with Howland and how things are going in that regard. Yeah. That's what I'm looking forward to. Opens a whole, whole bunch of other baskets of fruit that does. Indeed. Uh, yeah, we might get into some of that. I mean, speculation, but some of that even later in this episode. So we'll see. Um, okay, for me, the subtle but nagging question. Again, I don't know how subtle it is. Uh, the question, I guess I'd say, if, if we're having to pose it as a question, is why... Well, spoilers? I don't know if this is a spoiler. If We, we might have already spoiled this. What is Alaris doing in Old Town, and why is his identity what it is? I'm interested. I want to know... Her? Her, you mean? I, I, I don't know. Did we spoil that? Hmm. I might have just... <laughs> I have just. I think we did talk about it. The th- The fan theory is that Alaris is Sorella. Uh, I think we talked about it not in Davos After Dark before, but um, why Sorella is posing as a boy 
named Alaris in Old Town. Why why the subterfuge? You know what what's going on there? That's that's my subtle but nagging question. Very good. That's I mean, there there are nobles that study there. Why isn't she just studying as herself? Right. Um, there's there's some reason for chicanery that I'm interested. in. Very good. All right, uh, let's move on. We've got a uh, doozy of a chapter here. Davos and Matt's got it. Eyes are crying from the unions in the hold. Save Stanny boy, save Stanny boy. Finger bones in a bag mean the truth will be told. Steady Davos, steady Davos. Did you guys think Davos was dead? <laughs> you kind of did, right? You thought he was dead. Come on. But no, Davos is alive! Yay! Uh, alive, and actually, he's puzzled by how well off he is. There's some uh, comfortable accommodations that he's been put up in. Comfortable for a prisoner, anyways. But he's still rather anxiously awaiting an execution date that he expects to wake up to each day. As he says, the worst part is not the dying, it's not knowing when or how. Uh, to try to pass the time, he spends his days reading, chatting with his jailers, and writing slash rewriting farewell letters to his family. How bleak is that? Uh, one morning, however, he receives a visit from a new homie, a tall, deeply lined face framed by gray-brown hair. The man introduces himself as Robert Glover and politely bids Davos come with him. Rather urgently, we might add. Robert fills Davos in on all the happenings in the north. Deepwood Mott, uh, Robert's hometown, has been retaken from the Ironborn. Moat Kaelin has fallen. Roos Bolton is in charge of the north, has Arya Stark, and has called all the Northmen to Barrowton to pay him homage, homage and witness the marriage of Arya to Ramsay. Winterfell, baby. So, with assurances that he will not die at Robert's hands, Davos follows him on what turns out to be a really cool secret path, ending in a secret door leading to a comfortable, well-furnished room. And in that room sits Wyman Manderley, the same man who had ordered Davos's death, just one Davos chapter previous. Even more interesting, Wyman is now the model of courtesy. He explains that his son Willis, held captive by Lannister forces, had recently been released in a prisoner exchange and had just returned home. They were in the middle of his welcome home feast, and Wyman had uh, stepped out with the excuse to see a guy about some porcelain. Yeah, he said he was going to the bathroom, and a guy like Wyman takes a long time in the bathroom, hence he could get away. He claims it's the only way he can escape the prying eyes of his fray house guests. Okay, enough beating around the bush, let's just get right to the point. Wyman and his family have been turning in an acting performance worthy of Oscars. With the phrase staying over and with Willis still captive, Wyman knew he had to give the appearance of loyalty to the crown. But now that Willis is home and the phrase about to leave, the time for action and the reveal of true motivations has come. He reveals that there was an execution. Davos was technically dead but that it was a common criminal who was made to look Davos-ish. So by Wyman doing that, executing quote-unquote Davos, he proved his loyalty to the crown. But really, 
Really, Wyman is thirsty. Thirsty for revenge. There's no better way to go throughout this passage than just by reading exactly what he says. So he says, My son Wendell came to the twins as a guest. He ate Lord Walder's bread and salt and hung his sword upon the wall to feast with friends, and they murdered him. Murdered, I say, and may the phrase choke upon their fables. I drink with Jared, jape with Simon, promise Rhaegar the, the hand of my own beloved granddaughter, but never does that mean I have forgotten. The North remembers, Lord Davos, the North remembers, and the mummer's farce is almost done. <laughs> Chilled by Wyman's passion, Davos reminds him that Stannis can help provide the justice he speaks. Better call Saul. And with no king in the north, uh, they could easily just throw their support behind Stannis, right? Good idea, huh? Wyman then reveals that actually, not all of Lord Eddard's sons are dead. And then he brings in a lad, a 14-year-ish old boy, uh, obviously by appearance not a Stark. I remember my first time reading and I was like, oh my gosh, they got Bran Rickon. Not a Stark. And it's revealed to be a mute named Wex from the Iron Islands. You may remember Wex. We've seen him before. He was Theon Greyjoy's squire and was actually at Winterfell when it was taken. During the battle... Wex had hidden in a tree in the Godwood, Godswood, and had witnessed much and more. The Manderleys, since he had come into their uh, protection, had been teaching him his letters, and by so doing were starting to learn about some of the event events he'd been a witness to. Namely, first of all, that Theon Greyjoy was not killed, as is commonly believed, but carried back to the Dreadfort as a prisoner. We know this. Also, that he wasn't responsible for the fact uh, the sack of Winterfell, that was all conducted, as we know, by Ramsay. And also, after the battle, Wex witnessed the escape of six survivors. Two boys, accompanied by two wolves, and four others. So I guess that's eight, but six humans. Two went one way, and four went another. Wex followed the two, a woman and a boy, and knows where they ended up. Hmm. Bring us the boy the heir to Winterfell, Wyman offers, and he and his forces will lend their support to Stannis. That's the deal. But why him? Why Davos? Why does he want Davos to bring him the boy? Why can't they just get someone else? Why not uh, more qualified individuals who are already in Wyman's service and have proven loyalty to Wyman? Because, Wyman answers, the way there will not be easy, and a smuggler's skills will be required. Where is it you want me to go? Davos asks. Wex shows him, taking a dagger and throwing it at a map on the wall. The point of the dagger sticks in a spot that turns Davos's blood cold. He considers asking Wyman to send him back to his cell, thinking it to be a much safer place than a place where men were known to break their fast on human flesh. Yikes. And so ends one of the most well-beloved chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire. All because of that speech. It's uh, called in the fandom the, the North Remembers speech, right? You yeah. that right? And uh, it's quite chilling. So what we're seeing here is some apparent loyalty to the Starks. And um, I guess we'll just jump right into this. 
we know who the people are that Wex saw from the Godwood. Uh, just a quick refresher. We find that uh, Bran, Rickon, uh, help me out here, Scad, Hodor, Jojen, Mira, Osha, and the two wolves. Yeah, you didn't need any help. Uh, were, <laughs> whew, I thought I might for a second. <laughs> Climb out of Winterfell's crypts after the battle and after everyone's kind of gone. They go to the Godswood where they find Maester Lewin, who is dying. And uh, that's when they decide to split up and everything. And so the plans are revealed, uh, everything. And Wex, actually, that whole time was up in the tree, listening. I went back to see if George left us any hints there, like some strange rustling leaves or something like that. And there's nothing there. Uh, But he heard everything, and he decided to follow the woman and the boy who was Rick and Anosha. Um, So that's what we've got going on there. And my question to you, though, Scad, is... If Wyman wants them to bring Rickon back, mm-hmm. wouldn't he support Rickon? Is he wanting to bring him back for him to be the king in the north and the heir to Winterfell? And if so, why would he say he would support Stannis? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's um, maybe a bit of a compromise from Wyman's perspective. Um, hmm. You know, maybe it's a, okay, we bend the knee, we stick with the North, but my liege lord is back. The Starks are back Mm -hmm. in control in the North, but, you know, we'll aid Stannis in his quest for the Iron Throne. Um, So we'll help, yeah, we'll help you get to where you need to be and all that stuff. But then after that, you know, there's an understanding about the North. Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of where I was leaning, but I wanted to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it does. It does feel a little duplicitous, uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's probably where I'd lean. I mean, he's he's um, he's very carefully not been clear as as to exactly <laughs> what the terms are here, right? Um, he's he's been vague and prob- probably. Well, it depends a little bit on on what you believe about Wyman, and we'll probably get into that a little bit. Uh, but mm-hmm. I believe intentionally KG. KG in what way? Uh, using his somewhat blustery, buffoonish uh, personality and uh, behavior to slide by the fact that he hasn't actually agreed to anything here. Mm-hmm. Because he hasn't, he, he doesn't specifically say what he'll do, right? And um, t- so I, I, I think I think Wyman trades on people thinking that he's just this fat, know nothing guy that can't get anything done. And in reality, I think he's quite intelligent, very deceptive and misleading when he needs to be, and yeah, cagey. Yeah, he is indeed very sly, and he he seems to know how to work with people, both who are not on his side and those who are on his side. Um, He reveals that uh, his one daughter, Winifred, uh, who was present at the um, at the in the last chapter when Wyman puts the hammer down on Davos, right? And Winifred uh, was kind of one of those that 
stuck up for Wyman and she was she was all about like getting Davos out of there and stuff. We find out that she knew all along. She was in on Wyman's plan and she played her part perfectly. We find out that the other one, Willa, the granddaughter, was not in on the plan at all. <laughs> and yeah. her uh, impassioned speech in favor of the North was completely uh, done just out of that, out of passion. And Wyman is so proud of her for doing that. Um, but uh, you know who that made me think of? The whole Winifred being in on the plan and it helping to work things out? Made me nope. think of Doran. Made me think of old oh. Doran Martell. See how a plan plays out when you just talk to your kids? Yeah. When you just fill them in a little bit on what's going on? Yeah. Sometimes things work out, Dor- or, uh, Doran, you know? Yeah. Not always, but sometimes they do. <laughs> yeah. Different situation and, and different stakes. It's not apples to apples, but uh, yeah. Still, though, your, your, point is, part. your point is well taken. I mean, yeah, he had he has a phrase, in his court very in his face and needs to enact a plan immediately. So yeah, the stakes are a little bit different in the, in the situation, but yeah, your point is, is well made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I have a whole lot more to talk about with this chapter. Um, other than I have loads loyalty. So <laughs> if you've got a couple more things you want to talk about, let's do it. Well, I just want to talk about Wyman in general. And, and there's, there are just little, little pieces that are dropped in here that I think I maybe look, I'm a Wyman apologist. I love the guy. He's one of my favorite characters in the series. Uh, I have a hard-on for him uh, like crazy. Uh, I don't believe that he's uh, a malcontent upstart trying to gain the North for himself or anything like that through any of this. Uh, I think he has the best of intentions for the Starks at his at his heart here. Uh, and so I admit to being an apologist. Uh, but... I think there are things sprinkled throughout this chapter and other places that are are meant to show you how capable he is. And I'll just I'll mention a few of them. Um, the first is just the city itself. White Harbor is a center of opulence for the North in a world that's generally subdued and gray and cold and not flourishing. You know the North in general. White Harbor is well taken care of. They describe in, in the previous chapter with Davos this new set of steps up to the keep, up to the castle. Um, in this chapter, you have a very carefully crafted, se- crafted secret passageway from their um, from their cells to the castle for just such a need. Like this is a guy that is thinking ahead. He's a guy that knows what he wants to do and 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 takes care of things. He's got these ships secreted away as he discusses up the, up the river. Um, he's hiding troops everywhere. Uh, he knows where his alliances are uh, with the locks and, you know, promising that he can bring certain people around. He knows that those people are loyal to him. Um, I think, I, th- I, th- I think all these things, you know, the, 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 the way he's uh, always taking really long bathroom breaks to set up, the, the the ability to be away at certain times, um, he, you know, he's crafted this legend of him being this guy that has to take a shit for you know days at a time just so that he can get away like this. And like even the whole the whole city mention, knows that he mentions. Um, I I think we're meant to see that this is a planning, careful man that is capable of accomplishing whatever he wants. 
his city is extremely well run and tight and and in control and i think we're meant to see that and i think it's meant for us to project that onto who he is so well run that it is uh and untouched by the war which to me says that it's you know it's a place that people take seriously and they're not just going to try to attack it or take it over because yeah. they know that it would be a formidable it would be a formidable uh place to take you know not that yeah. other places aren't and maybe it has something to do with the fact that it's in the north and the north just isn't as important uh yeah. of a place to those in the south and stuff but the fact that it's been able to remain untouched i think is a testament to the type of city it is and the type of ruler that Wyman is and I would agree with you completely. I think he's very craftily crafted this uh, this look or this identity that is not entirely an accurate depiction. I also think that he is very careful in his planning of the way that he runs things and, and his future plans. But that's where I might diverge from you a little bit. I'm not saying that I'm not a Wyman apologist. I do like him quite a bit. And I'm not saying that I totally think that he's talking out his butt, but with someone as successful as Wyman is, and as someone who seems to be so capable and successful at what he does business-wise and as a ruler, I can't help but think there's a bit of what's in it for me type mentality that he wants to get out of this. I, I just have a real hard time believing that he's just in it, just out of loyalty to the Starks. And I don't have any insight into his personality. I can't see inside his brain, but I just can't shake that feeling that he wants something out of this. And and it's not like he's mean and he's, and he just wants to use Rickon as a puppet or something like that, but that he might expect some kickbacks or something in return for helping to, to get the, the air back to Winterfell. Sure. Uh, like you mentioned in our recent parenting special episode uh, about the Tyrells, there's nothing wrong with wanting to advance your family and and you know improve your standing mm-hmm. and, and get stuff out of it. But that doesn't mm-hmm. take that doesn't necessarily take away from good intentions. And sure. um, so yeah, I, I don't I don't I don't necessarily think he's like oh yeah I don't I definitely don't want to profit in any way from this. But I don't think it's mm-hmm. his motivation. Um, and, and the, the only reason I have, you know, there are people that, that do feel that way, that, that he's totally in it for himself and wants, you know, the, the North for himself and, uh, will use Rickon in that way if, if he can get him. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, but one of the things that you get and is, you know, when he's talking about, uh, Winifred and is it, what, what was the, the other girl's name? The awesome one? Willa. 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 I almost guessed it. I should have had a seem smart. Uh, when Willa, when he's talking about Willa and how proud he is of her and showing their true colors, he has no reason really to bring that up to Davos. No reason really other than his real feelings of pride. And <laughs> he, doesn't need to, he doesn't need to share any of that with Davos. It has nothing to do with the mission he's trying to send Davos on. Um, and so I think it's a, again, maybe it's part of an act, but I feel like it's very much just his real feeling that this is the way he feels about the Starks. And um, and he'll move heaven and earth to, to help them. Uh, you know, it, when the books come out, I will totally eat crow if I'm wrong on this, but I have a very, very strong feeling about Wyman and and the the quality of his person. Um, and 
part of it that might go into this is quality of person, but also uh, abhorrence of the alternative, which is pretty much yeah. at this point, the Boltons, right? Right. And, right. you know, things were good and prosperous under the, uh, under the Starks. Things under the Boltons are nothing but anxiety ridden all the time as they slowly creep over the land, taking everything over. He would never yeah. be able to be safe or, or be able to sleep comfortably at night because he'd know that the Boltons are eventually going to be gunning for him. Yeah, um, there's so th this is an this is an old thing too. You may remember way way back when uh, people are gunning for uh, the marriage to oh, gosh, I've forgotten her name now. Um, the widow of Hornhill, uh, or not Hornhill, mm -hmm. but uh, Lady Hornwood. Lady Hornwood, yes. Sorry, gosh, I'm struggling tonight, Matt. Uh, but they're 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 all kind of putting their putting their best foot forward to to get her uh, her hand in marriage and and therefore her lands. The Boltons, you know, th this is these are lands right at the tip of the White Knife, at the very the very top of it. Uh, and the Boltons and the Manderleys have kind of been vying for control of that territory a little bit for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so they already have, you're just weighing, you know, weighing back on what you said, they already have some conflicts with the Boltons uh, in their history to already be predisposed to not want it to go this way. Um, yeah, so yeah, Hornwood I, I is like, you. geographically, it's like right in between the Dreadfort and White, White Harbor, like right. smack in the middle between them. Right. So, yeah. <clears throat> right. Uh, anyway. you, said a, you said a few things there uh, that I wanted to touch on. Um just about uh, you know the city not being touched and how how formidable it might be to take. We did read in the previous Dollars chapter how they've improved the defenses of the harbor itself with scorpions and a higher. They've they've reinforced and made the wall higher and uh, they've got men out uh, out on seal uh, some sort of seal island there. Um, but also it's it's just dropped in here very briefly in this chapter. Um, Wyman has a bunch of ships that he's built, but he does not have a navy. He has ships for a navy, but he has no one who knows how to sail them. Not not unlike kind of what we're reading about in King's Landing uh, later in this episode, they don't have the right people to sail all these ships. You know, they're they're a harbor and they have sailors, but they don't have warriors. They, they're not military. They don't. Yeah, naval they don't have ironborn ready stuff, people. Yeah. yeah, ready to sail these and you know and run a a full naval campaign. So they have ships, but they need the right people to to sail them. Um, the other thing, just on on this. Uh, this, what I've said is kind of Wyman's personality and uh, this role he's playing to kind of make himself seem dull as mud and stupid and incapable. Uh, it it called to mind Henry the Fourth, uh, Shakespeare, and I'll I'll probably read a passage of it for my my sign off quote. But there's basically a whole bit where he where Henry the Fourth as a youth uh, he was a partier. He hung around with 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 drunkards. Uh, and people that like to play practical jokes and, you know, dick around and not do anything important with their lives. And he did this as part of a strategy. Spoilers if you haven't read Henry IV. Uh, as part of a strategy to when he was needed, when, he, when the air was required. Because he was an heir this whole time, but wasn't needed. When the air was required, he would emerge from this like this shining beacon, an incredible soldier, a good military mind, a leader of men, capable, confident, the whole package, and comparing that from the low opinion everyone had to this new opinion, it's just this swelling, this this swelling, uh, you know, position he puts himself in. And I think Manderley is going to do the same thing. 
He has painted himself in this low, low area so that people underestimate him, not think he's capable, and like Henry IV, he can just emerge in the sun and the day will be his. That's my, uh, that's my opinion on Wyman Manderley. I think you've established that opinion. All right, Mr. Wyman there. Uh, Good. I just wish he'd, I wish he'd take a little bit more care of himself, Scad. This guy's just one bear claw away from massive heart attack. So, yep. I know take how care of yourself, Wyman. <laughs> Wyman is is beyond the pale, buddy. He's <laughs> he's a berg boy. Yeah. Uh, so come on, Wyman. Think about your legacy. Let's have you around. Let's have you around, buddy. Yeah, we talked all about Wyman. Was there anything about Davos in here? Oh, I just love the guy. Um, yeah. A man should have more to say when staring at the end of his life, but the words came hard. Yeah. Just a, that first, the first act of the chapter just, I don't know, it caused me to reflect a little bit. And, you know, what am I going to say? Is, is mm-hmm. my life, you know, nears the point where I'm about done. And, uh, yeah, a very reflective moment for Davos and, uh, kind of heartbreaking to, you know, consider that he doesn't know his youngest children all that well and how yep. they'll remember him and, and stuff like that. But, I started writing uh, my own letters. Did you? Yeah. They're at this point, all they're right. two lines each, but yeah, I'm like, <laughs> Oh, I, I gotta do this. Like you never know. Like when something's going to take Empire Strikes you, Back and... is, is the best. You say that? <laughs> Not yet. Empire's no. the best. It'll, it'll be in there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, did you ever see the movie My Life with Michael Ke- I think it's called My Life with Michael Keaton? No. I oh, think fa- so. Fantastic film. He's he gets cancer and um his wife is pregnant and he knows he's not going to live to teach the child anything, so he he creates basically all of these video clips and things of experiences and him you know riding a roller coaster and doing all these things and teaching them how to do basic things uh that that she'll be able to show him so that the baby will kind of have experiences it's a great film old film now at this point but uh very moved a young scad quite a bit oh man i have a feeling i would ball through a film like that so. uh you know what i'm gonna Don't go know that i'll be checking out anytime soon i it just it just came back to me hearing you talk about it uh talking about this scenario with Davos, so I'm going to go check that out. Sound, sounds great, and it sounds like I would just be a mess watching it, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, uh, do on? you feel like you, Wyman's your man, so I want you to feel like you've been able to <laughs> say everything you want to say. Really? Because the last thing you said was, it feels like you've established that, man. Let's move on. <laughs> Uh, I didn't say let's move uh, on. Maybe I implied that it was a in bit. it was in your tone. But... I you know we've been at this for hundreds of hours. I can pick it up now. Uh, you know it wasn't my overt sigh on your musical choices, but it was similar. Uh, yeah, that's okay. Uh, let's let's move on. All right, Jamie's chapter. Hey, uh, it is. Oh, we uh, we're, we're gonna yeah we're gonna insert a, another ask the fingers here. Two of three. This one's this was just a little fun one from Adam Heath, uh, one of our patron supporters. Favorite bad guy slash evil monster from Lord of the Rings. Okay, you go first this time. All right. Uh, I still try to think of one. 
I have. I'm just teasing I have, that one. I have two. Uh, I guess I'll just go with Shelob, who's not not necessarily mm. an. I you could say evil monster. I mean, it's just a spider that lives in a cave that wants to eat. Um, you know, but it is very as described by Tolkien, if I remember right, just a primal dark force that you can just kind of feel feel the dread when you go in there. And uh, I like my dark forces, primal and old. I mean, I think they described Shelob as being there, like, like even before Sauron, like old. yeah, really old. And uh, yeah. and I love that. Yeah, so I'll go with Shelob. Although I had a honorable mention, we'll see if I need to give it after you give yours. Uh, mine's a pretty obvious one, but I just think that their history is super fascinating, and that is the Balrogs. Oh yeah. Uh, being fallen Maiar, Maiar in the Tolkien verse were like these primordial spirit dudes that like shape things. the earth yeah. and stuff. Yeah, and these Balrog are fallen, essentially fallen gods that are just like super evil and imbued with just everything evil. Just strengthens them, and uh, just a definition of a bad guy. So very cool. Yeah. My my honorable mention was just the ring itself, um, hmm. but uh, you know drives the whole the whole plot of everything. But it's also it's a it's a little bit of a cop out to call that a bad guy. Um, but anyway, thanks for the question, it's Adam. Part that was of fun. a bad guy, right? Yeah, yeah. It's Sauron's essence, yes. kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, all right, uh, Jamie. That's you again, buddy. Would you know that he's deadly in a fight and a smile so wide to get shaving at the palm of his hand, Jamie Lannister? Got a thing for sister, gonna keep it quiet, so we'll push a kid out a window. And when that king's lying, dead, it doesn't matter, reason, bottom line is the treason. And deep inside, could there be something on if you can see a hero? Could that be? Said Jamie, said Jamie, said Jamie Lannister, say it again, said Jamie, said Jamie. Said Jamie Lannister. Uh, uh, uh. Jamie arrives uh, to fields being tilled at Derry. One more attempt to bring in a harvest before the cold arrives. The old but small town of Derry, you may remember, was granted to Jamie's cousin Lancel following Lancel's deeds at the Battle of Blackwater. And it's just recently that young Lancel, in the company of the ever astute should have been hand of the King Kevin, his father, have come to claim the landing castle and begin to clean it up. And things seem to be going about as well as they can. Uh, Lancel's even flying a new banner, one quartered with both Lannister and Derry sigils, and an obvious PR effort to let his uh, new peeps know that he means no harm. Uh, the castle had been burned once and sacked twice during the war, so you can imagine that these small folk and other inhabitants of the castle are a little bit wary. Um, quick note, Lancel is now married to... Uh, Amory, I'm going to say Amory Frey, whose mother Maria was a Derry. Hence, he can also claim that Derry is his via marriage. Kind of a stretch a little bit, but it's there. Anyways, Jamie has decided to stop into Derry on his way to lift the siege at River Run. <laughs> Frankly, to maybe stall long enough uh, that River Run will fall without him having to go there. 
and he's pleasantly surprised at how things are improving at Derry. One surprise, however, is the amount of sparrows present at the castle to help protect the people, in addition to fray forces and even peasants who are armed. Obvious reasons, as we've already discussed. As he's shown his to his quarters by the maester, he finds it odd that he's been placed in the actual quarters of Lord Derry, like the the suite of House Derry. The maester answers that Lancel now sleeps in the sept, which is where he happens to be right now praying, uh, and where he's like always found. Odd, Jamie thinks, as Lancel should be focusing on having a child with his new wife to solidify his hold on the lands. Uh, Lancel is equally absent for the feast held later that night, Jamie finding out from Amory that Lancel is away fasting. He wonders how Kevin must feel about his son's newfound piety. Uh, could that be the reason that Kevin left so abruptly after the wedding? So, I don't know. But they talk of a little more. The huge wolf pack that is still roaming the countryside, as well as the outlaws who killed Amory's father, Merritt. You guys remember him? We'll call back to him in our discussion, I'm sure. The outlaws, formerly led by Beric Dondarrion, are now led by a hooded woman, it is said. They have disappeared into the neck and have not been seen since. Hmm... Anyways, escaping from the feast as fast as he can, Jamie retires to the sept to speak with his cousin. Getting through the door guard of belligerent sparrows, Jamie finds Lancel a ghost of the man he used to be. Grievously wounded on the black water, Lancel has recovered poorly. He's white-haired, paper-thin, and his sudden pious lifestyle has left him looking rather, well, uh, humble. Jamie is, to a word, annoyed by Lancel, who confirms that his father left because of Lancel's stubborn and newfound devotion to the faith. He reveals that he never wanted Derry in the first place, nor did he want to marry. And if, you know, Amory wants to find someone else, go for it. He has no intention of consummating their marriage. He's taken Baylor the Blessed for his personal hero and admits that he has many sins to atone for. Uh, he then leads Jamie into the proverbial confession booth, admitting his role in Robert Baratheon's death as the one who got him roaring drunk on that hunt. Uh, but that's not it. Picking up Lancel's scent, Jamie presses, eventually getting Lancel to admit that he did indeed have relations with Queen Cersei. Sexual relations. Uh, confessing also that all his life he just wanted to be Jamie. Finally, he informs Jamie that on the morrow he plans on renouncing his lordship and his wife and then traveling to King's Landing to take vows and join the warrior's sons. Uh, you'll remember that Cersei had just allowed that holy order to be reinstated in return for the High Septon's blessing. Completely confounded, Jamie had not heard of this news yet, uh, and he just, he's like, you know what, I'm done with you, buddy, and he takes his leave of Lancel. Later that night, as he's play-fighting, as he does with Ser Illyn in the Godswood, he shares a story with the silent executioner about the last time he was in Derry. It was on the return trip to King's Landing, after they'd gone to fetch Lord Eddard from Winterfell. We remember this from the book of Game of Thrones. It was the same night that Lady Sansa's wolf had bitten Joffrey. Cersei had been livid, and as Jaime was taking her that night, she screamed, I want... At first, he thought she was referring to him, uh, but then, realizing that she was actually referring to Sansa, maimed or dead, 
And in that moment, Jamie admits he would have killed Sansa himself for Cersei. The things I do for love, he thinks, as Illyn clackingly laughs at him. And so ends the chapter. Um, wow. A little bit of a interesting so, chapter for Jamie, just character-wise, I guess. Yeah, this is definitely a character chapter for Jamie, and I found it very fascinating. There's very little action. There's no action in the whole chapter. Um, it goes from him <laughs> talking. Gatehouse to Amy's looking for some though. She was, yeah, to him going to the feast and talking to old Gatehouse, and then talking to Lancel, and then talking to Illyn. End of chapter. Uh, but a good character chapter for Jamie is he starts to. Well, he's 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 moving further along on this quest. You know, he was always hungry for glory, and we see early on in the chapter when he admits, like I said in my chapter summary, that he's kind of hoping this siege at Riverrun will take care of itself so he doesn't have to break his vow that he made to Lady Catelyn. That, to mm-hmm. me, just doesn't sound Jamie-like at all. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds like, like the Jamie that Jamie's trying to be. Yeah, the Jamie that we've seen for the last book. The Jamie um, that knows he's going to have to go back to the White Book and and indicate that he broke a vow is, uh, you know. Record his deeds, yeah. Yeah. On the topic of character building, uh, one part that I really loved, and you mentioned Gatehouse looking for some. Remember where Gatehouse is sitting there? Uh, Gatehouse, for those of you who may not remember, is Amory Frey. They call her Gatehouse Amy uh, because of her promiscuous nature. Yes. Yeah. Anyways, she's sitting next to Jamie at dinner, and she's like stroking his golden hand. Yes. And he's like, <laughs> and he's like, does she think I can feel that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's almost like she's on ecstasy. She just wants to like rub <laughs> things and like Ooh, the gold is smooth and this yeah. is nice. Yeah. She's but, a, she's but... a wa- she's a walking hard on. Oh yeah, the yeah. irony. She's, the irony she's of for anybody. The irony of the her sexually, you know, the sexually adventurous gatehouse Amy married to Lancel the devout and chase is just too much goodness from George. It's just great. It's, just it's great, too perfect. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, but I did find some symbolism embedded in that joke, though. You know, Jamie can't feel her caressing his hand, and that's his. That's his former sword hand. It's further symbolism of losing the hand. We've talked about this a number of times. Um, But I went back to that bathtub scene in the Brienne chapter. I went back to it for another reason, which I think we'll talk about. Um, I know the reason you went back. The Pia thing? Um, (laughs) He's back in the bathtub, and it's first of all, it's remarkable to see how different Jamie is just from that bathtub scene to now. It's remarkable. He was such a smart a and stuff still back then but he talks about how the hand was the hand he'd killed a king with it was a hand that he threw bran from the tower with it was a hand he used to pleasure cersei he says and Mm. now i think it's just symbolic of him saying that he can't feel her caressing his hand you know what i mean that mm-hmm. hand is is gone. That lifestyle that he lived, those things are becoming more calloused over, and he's kind of moving on. So I thought that was kind of a cool buried symbolism uh, in that. It is. Well put. 
I didn't. I didn't see that. Yeah, you're 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 a, a Wyman apologist. I'm a bit of a Jamie apologist. So not even a bit. Yeah. I love I love no, I love the character. I yeah. love the character. So speaking uh, of characters see. we love or don't, hmm. how is has any character done a hard, harder, faster 180 than Lancel? <laughs> like I, I, I mean, you know, again, atheist here, but and I don't want to offend anyone, but his adherence to this religion with this velocity, it just makes me skeptical of him and of, I don't know, I don't know. Like skeptical. This in is which fast. Way? Like, is is he I, lying, or do you mean like he's? What do you mean by skeptical? That he's not he's sincere. Just not healthy. Mm-hmm. That he's just grasping. Mm-hmm. That he's he's grasping for something, and he found this. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, like it's it's too fast. Right. Right. Yeah. And I've seen that a bit with uh, friends in the military, believe it or not, and they they get through basic training. One of my best friends was he was never more devout religiously than when he was at basic training. He'd mm. go to church every single week at basic training. because it was where he kind of found peace through all the, you know, I've never been to basic training for the Marines, but I hear it's a fairly traumatic experience from the stories that I've heard. And, he, and, and I had another, I have a cousin actually who was all about, after he got out of basic training, he was all about being a hardcore churchgoer type guy. And, you know, a couple months pass and, just went back to being the way he was with zero interest in religion. But uh, it's interesting how those traumatic experiences can sometimes make you turn the way you turn. But yeah, Lancel is just like hardcore. This is too much, buddy. Not healthy at all. Yeah. How many times does Jamie try to get him to to eat with him? I think it's like three or four times. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, man, I'm good. I'm uh, I'm good. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, okay, I understand you're good, but do you want to just go get a quick snack? Just, just a little something. <laughs> It'll be all right. Yeah. He even barters with him at one point, doesn't he? He's like, I'll do this if you'll eat something. Is it, yeah. I think I'll pray with you <laughs> if you'll eat with me or something. Yeah. yeah. Which is also yeah. interesting from Jamie, right? Like, what investment really does Jamie have in this? I mean, I guess from maybe securing another holding uh for the lannisters but he no, really doesn't I've, have I've... a ton of investment for caring about lancel no i yeah i'm i'm willing to take it at face value i think he's trying to help another human out even mm-hmm. a human that fucked his sister slash lover behind yeah. his back yeah i i think he i think he has some pity for lancel he can <clears> see <throat> that he was used by Tyrion. He can see that he was used by Cersei. He can see that he tried to do maybe the right thing uh, at the Blackwater and was almost killed. Uh, you know, he's probably just got some legitimate pity and, you know, wants to do right by him, maybe. Maybe feeling some legit kinship with him in the regards of being used by Cersei? Perhaps, mm-hmm. yeah. Maybe a little. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we talk about Pia a little bit? Sure, we can talk about Pia. Isn't that sweet? He... So Yes-ish. I, I didn't talk about her in the summary. Um, 
I didn't think it was quite important enough to include in the summary. But uh, I think it's actually rather important, though, as we're talking about Jamie's character. Uh, she was the washerwoman at Heron Hall. Um, she'd been raped, some say we're saying hundreds of times, by especially um, Gregor Clegane's men that had been left there, right? And, um, or not, not, not just them, but also, uh, who am I thinking of? Vargo Holtz guys, right? Yeah. And um, so Jamie ran into her again when he came back to Heron Hall and kind of took her into his service. And, uh, you know, she got to leave Heron Hall and is now traveling as kind of, is it kind of his washerwoman? It's kind of his caretaker? Washes his clothes? Make sure things yeah. are good? But... I mean, he mentions that he, I think he uses washerwomen, plural, so I think she joined his team of washerwomen for the company. She's one of them? Yeah. 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 But uh, he sets up his uh, he sets up his squire Josman with her. <laughs> yeah, he he recognizes that uh, Josman maybe got a little crush on her, and he's like, "Hey, I'll be down at the feast all night, and uh, you guys kind of have the evening to yourselves. Here's this big old room I'm staying in. You know, if she'll have you, go for it, buddy." And he gives her even gives him even advice. He says, "But be kind to her. Treat her as you would your bride." And uh, sends them yeah. on their merry way. We'll see what happens, right? But yeah, I, I yeah, it's it's a nice it's a nice bit. Uh, it's still, you know, I, I I always want to tread lightly on this. This is not our world. This is George's world. It's a Middle Ages type, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. type of world. But it's it's still it's still very inconsiderate to Pia. If she'll have you take her, is like, how about court her? Or bring her flowers? Or, you know, and he does say be gentle with her in the sack, but yeah. I don't know. It's still a little... I don't know. It's still, it's still a little I, if, presumptive. If she'll have you. If she's down to clown, mm-hmm. go for it. Yep. That's how I read it. Anyways, I see what you're saying, though. Yeah. Uh, this is going to get me into a lot of trouble, but why not? I'm already doing it tonight, so who cares? But I got to bring up Jamie getting a little bit of a habsy with Pia. <laughs> and I only got to... Br- <laughs> because <laughs> I remember in some of our Brienne uh, debates that we've had on Twitter with people, the Jamie and Brienne, sometimes people use as the primary evidence that, Brienne, that uh, Jamie's got a... He has a crush on Brienne and his love with her is that he gets a bit of a havesy during their bathtub scene. And that's the scene I was, that's why I was going back to read the bathtub scene. Yeah. Was to, um, uh, the line was absurdly when he sees Brienne naked, he says absurdly, he felt his cock stir beneath the bathwater. Yeah. Um, and in this chapter he said, uh, when he sees Pia and she's kind of, she's kind of good looking, he said he was grateful when the bath was deep enough to conceal his arousal. So, just throwing it out there that Brienne's not the only one that gives him a heart, okay? He gets it usually around the time he's getting in the bathtub, apparently. So, well, just thought I'd throw that out there. Oh my god, do I do I go into this? I've it's taken not, you down there, buddy. Come Professor Scad, for like, you know, something everyone, at least half of our listenership could be a professor about... 
getting a hard on is not that uncommon. I mean, it can happen. I mean, it depends on the guy probably, but it can happen pretty easily. I mean, like, I don't, I don't think we should read too much into it, right? That's like, what I'm saying is that we shouldn't yeah. read too much into it. Into the no, right. I'm getting. I'm agreeing with you. Because of this, I'm yeah. agreeing with you. It's just, it's just, mm-hmm. Jamie got a hard on doesn't mean necessarily anything. Now, uh, right, he lost his right hand. Maybe his ability to help himself out is diminished, and so it's easier for him now to get a hard on because he's not taken care of as well as before. I don't know, right? But the pipes, we don't, we don't get a lengthy, you know, documentation of his of of his masturbatory habits. You know, but like, if you're going without for a while, that kind of thing happens with a stiff breeze. You know, like, I, <laughs> uh, yeah. I feel you. Don't. Something might might happen. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> point is, it happens. I don't. Uh, yeah. There. I, I hopefully yeah, that's point not. Is it happens. Hopefully that's not people's main source of evidence for for their. The love of Jamie and Brandon, I don't think it is. I think there are other contextual things that provide more evidence. Than Absolutely. But, there is plenty of stuff sure. in there. But plenty of stuff that's that's a much more solid footing than than that claim. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. So don't mean to disparage the uh, Jamie Brienne ship because there's a lot of legitimate stuff there. So. Sure. Anyways. Sure. Uh Okay. We got we got more? Um, no, I don't think so. I think I'm ready to go on to Brienne. Okay. Uh, one just quick note. Uh, I found it hilarious. The gatehouse Amy uh, has no idea who the Smiling Knight is. Uh, kind of, it's kind of maybe one of those moments for Jamie where he's like, "Oh, yeah, my glory is in the past here." Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like I'm old now. I think I, t- I think I told the Metallica Vegas story before on this cast, so I won't do it again. But there's did you? Uh, I don't know. I w- I was in Vegas for to to see Real Salt Lake play a preseason game once. I went down with a couple friends, and they called into the into the stands for people to do like the halftime show. They were going to do like a, a little game where you like dribble around cones and shoot on the goal and everything. And so I volunteered and uh, you know was out there with two other people. And one of them, you know, this was this was probably, you know, ten years ago now almost, and uh, and there was a girl there that was probably thirteen, fourteen that was competing uh, as as one of the three competitors in this halftime thing, and uh, and we're just talking, you know, there's a few minutes to kill or whatever. We're talking about music somehow, and mentioning favorite bands and I, I say yeah Metallica is my favorite band and and she says who mm. and just had no no idea even who they were and mm-hmm. and I I'm like listing songs and she's like no I don't you know no and it that's not helping yeah it, but thanks anyway yeah can we drop this and she, you know she's like <laughs> I, I yeah <laughs> I think it came up because at the time Freddie Adu was on the team Pretty do oh jeez I won't go into it but anyway he was on the team he was a young kid at the time and was dating Rihanna maybe at the time or some, I don't know some pop starlet so we were talking about it um, like oh I don't really get into that music um, you know but she had no clue and it, it was a it was a glory days moment for me right yeah um, mm-hmm. you know of yeah my days are over they they don't even know 
who my favorite band is, you know, yeah. let alone dislike yeah. them. Yeah. Anyway. I had that moment just a couple nights ago. My uh, my son was at the dinner table, and he was kind of doing this funky head movement thing with his while well, he was singing a song to himself. And and I was like, you look like Stevie Wonder. <laughs> and my other kids were like, who? <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh no. what have I done? <laughs> How have I failed you so? So after we cleaned up dinner, we... Uh, we fired up YouTube and watched some Stevie Wonder. Introduced him to you know superstition mm-hmm. and and all the classics. And they could not, they just couldn't even fathom that a guy could play the piano that well uh, and be blind. They were blown away by the man. But anyways, yeah, now they know. Yeah, writing is on the wall. <laughs> Sir Duke, that's the other one we listened to. I love that song. Uh, okay. Should we get to Brienne? Let's do it. Speaking of Brienne. Speaking of Brienne. If you could see what we could see, oh, I swear you would believe conviction, grace, and pride. Swear the beauty resides. You don't have to hide behind the lies. Oh, your fate they can't decide. Brienne, you'll always be a beauty to me. Septon Maribald leads Brienne, Pod, and Sir Hyle across the mouth of the Trident to the Quiet Isle, an island of devout and mostly silent men. He does so carefully as the tide recedes, leaving the narrowest of winding paths through a sandbar that can claim your life if you're not careful. All the worries for naught, though, as our crew of Sansa Seekers follow the Septon bravely and closely. Greeted by three of the devout on the other side. The one who speaks, promising shelter, fish stew, and a ferry ride on the morrow. Though Brienne's presence does bring them up a bit short, as they are not used to seeing women on the isle, they do seem pleasant enough anyway. Brienne is led to a stable where they will keep their mounts, and introduced to a huge wild horse that the brothers admit they have been unable to make use of, the beast having broken one man's leg and bitten the ear off another. As they make their way toward the elder brother in charge, they climb a hill passing shepherds, a man working a butter churn, and a giant of a man lame, digging a grave. That grave is for a brother that was killed at the raid on salt on the salt pans. The hound? Brienne asks. Another just as brutal, is the reply. Indeed, the raiders had cut out the brother's tongue, a wound he died from. They meet with the elder brother, a younger man than Brienne expected, powerful, thick man, seemingly made to break bones rather than heal them. He is kind, though, telling them of their life on Qualaral while they drink. Did they burn the sept of the salt pans? Sir Hyle asks about the raiders. Yeah, everything was burned. Burning, butchering, raping, looting, torturing, one woman's breasts chewed off and eaten. All while their lord, Sir Quincy Cox, sat in his castle refusing to protect his people or confront the malice on his doorstep. The older brother could not forgive Quincy, but is glad that Septon Maribald is here to do so. They eat a meal, simple fare but delicious nonetheless, before being taken to their quarters for the night. Pod split from Brienne for the first time, as women and men do not share a room on the Quiet Isle. On the way, Elder Brother talks to Brienne of salt pans. Truly nothing left but the keep. Even the survivors that were out fishing when it happened have moved on. This place is really just a terrible memory for them now. The future of the town in question as well, really. Ships used to call on occasion uh, to salt pans, but now, nobody there. In fact, that is, that is what the raiders were there for. They hoped to find a ship to steal. What do you hope to find there, Lady Brienne? A lady of three and ten, 
fair face with auburn hair. Sansa Stark! The elder brother informs her that there was a wolf girl with the hound, but it was Arya, not Sansa. She was alive, but may have been slain at the salt pans, he's not certain. Only that she was with the hound at the crossroads before they headed east towards salt pans. This too. The hound is dead, he assures her. He died by the sword as he had lived, the elder brother claiming, I buried him myself. He even leaves his helm on top of the grave, a helm that was later taken by another. He goes on to tell more of Sandor, more than we've heard from just about anyone regarding the quiet, brooding bully of a man, and I'm just going to read a bit. If even half of what we heard was true, this was a bitter, tormented soul, a sinner who mocked both gods and men. He served, but found no pride in service. He fought, but took no joy in victory. He drank to drown his pain in a sea of wine. He did not love, nor was he loved himself. It was hate that drove him. Though he committed many sins, he never sought forgiveness. Whether men dream of love, or wealth, or glory, this man Sandor Clegane dreamed of slaying his own brother, a sin so terrible it makes me shudder just to speak of it. Yet that was the bread that nourished him, the fuel that kept his fires burning. Ignoble as it was, the hope of seeing his brother's blood upon his blade was all this sad and angry creature lived for. And even that was taken from him when Prince Oberyn of Dorne stabbed Sir Gregor with a poisoned spear. The brother had found Sandor near death and tended to his wounds, but in the end the hound died in his arms. It's true, then. Sandor Clegane is dead. He is at rest. The elder brother then tells his own story. The third-born son of a knight, he became one himself. He fought, loved, sometimes forcefully, and drank heavily. But his life turned around when he died on the trident. In the midst of the fighting, he took a blow to the head and should have drowned at the trident, but instead turned up like driftwood on a lonely isle. Brienne listens intently, but has no idea, really, why she's getting this story. At the end, he urges her to go home, to give up her quest, to start life anew, to let someone else bring these outlaws to heal. Her father loves her and misses her, he's sure of it, and would rather have a daughter than a memory and a shattered shield. At this, Brienne breaks down bawling, wishing she could be the daughter her father deserves, or the son, a gallant that could bring honor to his house. But instead, Selwyn is just left with her. Then her story pours out to him. Every detail, from childhood betrothals to nimble dick and everything in between. She can't go home. Not until she finds Sansa, saving her from a fate with Cersei. She has to keep her oath or die in the attempt. And that's where the chapter ends. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, some some interesting stuff there. Uh, man, the salt pound sounds like a disaster. This night Quincy's a real piece of work. Right. He could have tried, he could have died. Yeah. Brienne says. Yep. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it doesn't sound like there's much he could have done. Although, uh... Maybe. If if what they were after was a ship, maybe he could have bartered to find one for them. Yeah. Right? Something. Let me work on this for you guys. Yeah. yeah. Let me help you out. What do you want? You want a ship? I can do that. I have money. Here's mm-hmm. here's a ship. Uh, yeah. Oh. Uh, elder brother talks of Sandor Clegane. Mentions that he pitied him. And I do too when I hear him tell it. It's a, it's a life he's led. Sander just, I mean, very early on, uh, probably that night that he drunkenly takes Sansa home from the feast. 
The clear back in Game of Thrones, right? Yeah, the, or is the, that King Clash the of Kings? The Tourney of the Hand feast. Yeah. No, that's Game of Thrones. That's uh, you start to pity him straight from there, I think. And he is a, a very pitiful character in in the regard of where he's come from and why he is the way he is. Yeah, pity pity without forgiveness is is what I call my stance on the Hound. I, I've come I've come out against the Hound lots of times on this cast. Uh, sure, sure. He's a yeah. he's a bully, and I I dislike him. Uh, I doesn't excuse uh, yeah. the way he's treated people and the things he's done for sure. But still, you can I can there's still room in my assessment for pity, uh, and mm-hmm. he has it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but perhaps maybe not as much as. Poor Brienne. Heart-wrenching stuff from her at the end of this chapter. I mean... It, yeah, she, she's so stoic all the time, yeah, right? right? And she finally breaks down. Yeah. Yeah, you know, with this with this person she'll likely never see again. Um, you know, sometimes that's what you need. Oh, for sure. You just need some dude, some chick... That you'll never see again. That you can just dump stuff on. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, who you know is going to listen. Who you know is not going to judge. Right. <clears throat> and I think that uh, that really opened her up when she heard that story of the hound, and she's like, "Wow, he really got through to Sandor, and he's still finding it in his heart to, you know, pity the guy. Maybe he could hear me out too. You know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right." And I don't know if she went through that process, but maybe it happened more just naturally that she started to kind of trust him. But uh, anyway, it yeah. sounds like this elder brother has a bit of a gift for that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he he does. I mean, for Brienne, imagine living your whole life just feeling like you weren't enough for your parents. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, we, we almost did try to cover Selwyn in our parenting episode. We didn't. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably thankfully, because I don't know if there's enough information to do anything with it. But, right. um, but you know, you get the sense that he was a good dad, supportive, you know, um, so Brienne somehow got to the continent of Westeros from, from the island of Tarth in, you know, in the service of Renly and had armor that fit and was, you know, we don't know the whole story really, but he seems supportive enough. Um, right. so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing that she's, she, you know, it almost, it almost didn't matter how supportive she still felt not good enough i think even when you're you're supported you you feel like man but i know dad had different plans for how he wanted his life to end up you know yeah um i know of a guy who who kind of feels the same way grew up in a in a very lds family and as an only child and recently came out to his parents as as being gay and uh, his parents were very supportive of him and continued to love him and everything. But, you know, this 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 guy, he says he feels he feels incredibly bad that he knows how much his parents wanted grandchildren and stuff like that. And, he goes, you know, and how much his how much his mom wanted a daughter and, you know, a daughter with him being an only child and thinking, you know, that she's not going to get that. And she loves him no matter what. And, and her, his dad loves him, too. But he himself still feels a little bit of guilt um, because he's he's not going to provide those things for his parents. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. That's very well put. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, just I, yeah. I mean, it, I guess it goes to show. Uh, no matter what level of support you give, sometimes you know, 
kids are going to feel. Yeah. You know, I, I had, I had a, a great Twitter conversation, uh, with, uh, with B word Beth, uh, on, uh, about Arya and the, after the, I think you stirred the pot with the parenting episode and I weighed in about, you know, whether, whether Ned did a disservice to Arya by not bringing more balance or something. And, uh, you know, very supportive from Ned, right? To, to support Arya's choices. And Selwyn, I think similarly, very supportive of Brienne, probably. But you, it does, sometimes it just doesn't matter what you do. Like you said, mm-hmm. uh, previously, agency. You, people go where they go and feel the way they feel, and you can only do the best you can do. Right. Yeah. And let them know you love them in the end. Indeed, yeah. So what do, you, what do you think? Could uh, Elder Brother indicate she should go home? Do you think she could go home? Could she live with herself? No. I, I mean, I think she could go home and she'd be welcomed with open arms. Uh, he makes a very good point that I'm sure he'd, he'd you know, sell one. If he could have it anyway, he'd want his daughter alive, he says at some point, yeah. right? Yeah. <clears throat> um. Especially we find out that Brienne actually had a brother, an older brother who passed away as a child. Yeah. So, uh, but no, Brienne definitely would not be able to live with herself. I mean, she's been on this quest for the past couple books based solely on the the vow she made to a woman who is now dead. Yeah. <laughs> and she's still going strong. So now she's made an additional vow, right, to Jamie. But uh, yeah, she wouldn't be able to rest. Absolutely. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, I think. Um, I don't have a... T- she, she, Go ahead. She thinks of Jamie to, just to just to appease our Jamie Brienne shippers, of which I am probably one. Uh, she does think of Jamie six, count them six times uh, during just like one quick paragraph. Um, and she thinks of Renly only twice. So if we're keeping score there, you know, she thinks of them in the tub together, of when he saved her in the bear pit... Swearing the oath and getting the sword from him. So there you go. Yeah, that's fair. But you know what? You know what tends to make you think of people a little bit less? At least in the long Time. term. Well, death. Renly's dead. <laughs> she has no there's no there's no incentive to think about like a future with Renly or, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Not not absolutely right. not to dismiss your point, but Yeah. Absolutely right. The point was more about thinking about Jamie. Yeah. Quite a bit. Yeah. And that's fine. Had you not compared it to Renly, I wouldn't have said anything. Sure. Uh, uh, I don't have a ton more. Um, nope. There, There was a nice, there's kind of a nice, a nice theme in this chapter about the things that come to the Quiet Isle that, that drift there, you know, mm-hmm. down the river and kind of where life takes you and what ends up where and... You know, the river of life. Oh, Good. We should probably maybe we should talk about that. That's a that's a really cool comparison. Um, wonder if we should talk a little bit about what the Quiet Isle is. It's it's kind of like this nonprofit organization, right? I think so of it as like a monastery. Kind of out there. Yeah, I... yeah, but it's not. It sounds like it's not like sanctioned by any church. Yeah, no. But like the seven, it's got a sept there, but. It's not like funded, yeah, by by the faith, but uh, 
fact, I wonder how they get their money. They do say they make their own beer, right? And they sell it. Yeah. So maybe that's part of how they get some income. And they're largely yeah. self-sufficient, I think. Um, the growing. The things are growing and stuff. And fishing. Yep. Yeah. But but no, it it is a question. Like it seems like a a nice little a nice little island that somebody might want to build a resort on someday. Like why is no one yeah. come and taking it from them? It's a reasonable question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess maybe it doesn't have a ton of value, but. Uh... Maybe, yeah. They they say they're protected by you know the river and the the tides and things like that. Um, sure. But yeah, yeah it, I mean, I don't think that would hold up if somebody really wanted to take it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yep. All right. Okay. Should we uh, go to Cersei? Let's do it. Oh, going from Brienne to Cersei is always a treat. I can do it. I believe in myself. Jumping out of hot water and jumping right into the cold. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> or the other way around, depending or on Or something. How you look at it. Yeah. Alluring eyes can get the guys with promises, lies, then cast aside. Can't she be the man she thinks her family needs? One brother she hates, with the other she mates. Those debts can she repay? Cersei Lannister. Uh, oh, jeez. Little Marjorie found out about the Ironborn invasion of the Reach, and she isn't she just cute, making all her demands? Actually, no. It isn't cute. Cersei uses all the restraint she has not to slap the younger queen for making demands. It's a report of a thousand ships that has raised the council from their beds. Sent by Willis and shouted from the rooftops by Marjorie, her brother Loras in silent support behind her, Cersei's council is bewildered seeming to think that disputing the number of ships reported is probably the most useful thing to do. Arain Waters at least weighs in with something, though it's not good news. Only the Red Wines have a fleet even close to big enough to contend with this force, if it's as big as reported. And the new Royal Navy ships are incomplete or not crewed yet. Pycelle insinuates that they will reeve and leave, but Marjorie insists it is a force bent on a different purpose. Willis claims they have raised lords to rule the Shield Islands, the reader already knows this to be true, allowing us to devalue anyone disbelieving the tale a little bit. We kind of have that uh, ace, in, ace in the hole. Cersei is one such that disbelieves the tale, thinking Willis is an incapable weakling, that he must have just been caught unawares due to neglected defenses. She goes to Old Reliable, blaming Stannis. Surely he is allied with the Ironborn here. Pycelle pokes holes in this theory, but Cersei's loyal army of yes-men drown him out. Cersei says she will not be baited into Stannis' trap by diverting her forces. Let Highgarden defend the Shield Islands. She's not going to send the Red Wine fleet. Marjorie is aghast that Cersei won't lift the siege at Storm's End or Dragonstone to send them soldiers. Many of these men are Reachmen, after all. But Cersei is firm when Loras takes up the request as well. Red Wine's fleet stays until Dragonstone falls. And with this announcement, we get one of the most devoted, brave, and foolish requests in the entire series. Your Grace, let me take Dragonstone. The castle will be yours within a fortnight, if I have to tear it down with my bare hands. Cersei jumps at this chance with urgency, immediately dispatching him to lead the force. It's a win-win for her. If he succeeds, Stannis loses Dragonstone, a heavy blow for his campaign. If he fails, the Tyrells lose a valuable member, Kingsguard or no. Kyburn has already reached the same conclusion, offering a knight to take the place of Sir Loras should he actually fall, a knight that no living man will be able to withstand. Cersei leaves her council behind and climbs in bed. Taina Merryweather is there asleep. Relax. Relax. It's not like that. Cersei just doesn't like sleeping alone. Never has. 
She tells Tyna everything about the meeting, relishing in the twist at the end with Laura's suicidal departure uh, about to occur. Before they can get back to sleep, though, another knocking comes at the door. This time it's Lady Stokeworth. Long story short, they bosh this thing with Braun badly. You may recall that Cersei entreated Sir Balman Stokeworth to have Braun killed. Some hunting mishap, something sneaky and underhanded. Instead, Balman challenged Braun to a joust. Lost that joust when Braun didn't follow the rules, of course, and ended up with a broken legs and a knife through his eye. Felice was sent from the castle without any time to even collect her things and threatened with rape if she didn't move fast enough. Oh, Braun, how we miss having you around. <laughs> Felice is a loose cannon with that gossipy mouth, so Cersei gets her drunk and gives her away to Kyburn, instructing that she should never return from the Black Cells. That little annoyance resolved, Cersei returns to bed again, her head spinning from all the wine she drank with Felice. This time, though, she decides to claim Taina the way Robert would sometimes claim her, roughly and however he wanted. Taina is willing, though, her Myrish swamp eager for Cersei, and she climaxes loudly and quickly. But for Cersei, there is no joy in it at all. When Taina offers to return the favor, Cersei instructs her to leave. Just like Robert, the morning after, Cersei would pretend it never happened. That's the end of the chapter. Oh boy, that uh, that came up by surprise. Yeah. Let me just say something really quick, because... Uh, I've there's a lot of people think of me as you know a Robert Baratheon lover and um, mm. to a degree I am um, to to a, to a degree of what might have been I think I am and and a lot of people even disagree with that but um, I I don't want to mince any words here Robert's an abusive asshole oh yeah I skipped a bunch of brutal stuff in my summary memories that Cersei has and things that she lays out and I, I didn't do it to I didn't do it to cover over uh, in my love of Robert. I did it just because it, it's a weird... Pl- it was in a weird place to try to squeeze in. It kind of didn't flow with the summary. But mm-hmm. I didn't want it to go and said that he raped her for years. Oh, yeah. And and rereading it now, I think it's... My love for, for Triple B is, is really tarnished. Um, and I really have to focus back on what might have been and not what he actually was. Because... It's so damning to him as a person. Yeah. The, the the neglect he shows, the lack of ownership for his terrible actions is almost as bad as the actions themselves. Um, so I, I just didn't want to mince words with that. I, I know people think of me as a, a Baratheon lover, and, and I am to some degree, but, you know. You I'm love the idea yeah. of a Bobby Baratheon, a yeah. big old Warhammer swinging hero. Not, right. Not... Yep. Not the rapist, yeah, because consent, you know, what consent given under like duress is not really consent, and no. uh, yeah, it's yeah. No. So I, we don't need to dwell on this. I just I just wanted to make sure I didn't gloss over it here and didn't miss it. Well, maybe we should just get this out of the way because I think it's an important conversation to have of of this whole situation now with Tana. It might be a little uncomfortable to have, but I think it's important that this was, you know, it's an equally, and it shows where Cersei is mentally and the issues that she has, uh, some of them probably perpetrated by her experiences with Robert, where she, the abuser, the abused, becomes the abuser. 
Yeah. Right? Yep. Tana seemed to be enjoying it, but uh, IMO, this is also a bit of a sexual assault. Um, maybe one of those consent under duress type situations. I don't know. We're not in Tana's head, but we are in Cersei's head. And Cersei wants it to be rape. Yeah. She wants to feel the way Robert felt. Yep. And she's not able to. She wants to be conquest, right? Yeah. Um, power, an expression of force. Um, and, you know, Tana's enjoyment, notwithstanding, you know. Yeah, it's it's uh, the intent behind it is absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there's shades of Robert Baratheon in this. Cersei was drunk, mm-hmm. as Robert often was. Um, she uh, Cersei kind of thinks of Robert she kind of what's the word I'm looking for not portray but she makes she thinks she she thinks of of Tana almost as Robert she notes Tana's hair is black just like Robert's was Um, she notes the differences in the (laughs) forgive me but the texture of their pubic hair right? Um, between Robert's and Tana's, uh, of course, going on to the boar's tusks, pretending her finger, imagining yeah. her fingers as boar's tusks, goring Robert. Yeah. Um, and like you said, uh, it was no good. She could not feel it. Whatever Robert felt on the nights he took her, there was no pleasure in it. Not for her. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're assuming there was pleasure for Robert, uh, to begin with. Uh, there may not have been for him either. Yeah, I'm just quoting with a no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, right. Sorry. I, yeah, I understand. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think. I don't think George is. Uh, you know, being coy with us here. He gives us the Robert stuff earlier in the chapter. He gives us this at the end of the chapter. Cersei is very directly relating her uh, experiences with Robert to her experience here. And has become him in a way, um, mm-hmm. and I, I don't. I don't think he's doing it lightly here. He's hitting us with a sledgehammer with this, and it's sad, uh, and it speaks to uh, what happens uh, with abusive situations. Um, it's one of the scariest things of being a parent. I think of, you know, do you the way you know? Anytime you raise your voice, is it something where, you know, they're they're getting gonna stick. S- yeah. scarred in some way that's going to stick that they're going to feel like. Yeah, that's the way, you know, I should treat people or, you know, if I get in a fight with my wife and they see this, is that something that they're going to think, oh, that's that's how you treat women, you know, or something like that. You know, it's it's a terrifying thing, this impression. Robert has left an impression, has scarred her after years of this treatment, and it would be silly to assume that she hasn't been affected in some way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, here it is, yeah. front and center. She's gotten to the point where she won't even allow herself to feel any sort of joy or happiness. You know, it's it's indicated in little hints here and there in the chapter. She talks about how sexual relations had never been good with anyone but Jamie, yet here she is pushing Jamie away all the time. Yeah. Um, her refusal of Tana's suggestion that she return the favor is, yeah. you know, it's carnal, but it's indicative, I think, of the... Uh, Cersei just can't find or doesn't won't allow herself to feel any sort of happiness anymore. Yeah. This girl is far gone, man. Yeah. Not to, not to uh, project Cersei onto Pia, but I I think this is partially what bothers me about 
Jamie's cavalier assumption about Taker. Mm. If she, you know, mm-hmm. this is a woman that we we, we kind of glossed over it in that chapter. But Pia was raped, according to the guy that that uh, Jamie beheaded, a hundred times by just the one guy. Passed hundred. around the castle, hundred, hundred, hundred times. She was raped over and over and over again to assume that she would be interested at all in having sex. Sex to people that have been raped like this, it you know you don't want to you don't want to paint everyone with the same brush. But for a lot of them, it becomes a completely taboo, uninteresting thing to them. Yeah, it's 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 an experience they do not want to have anymore. And yeah, it's not surprising here with Cersei, and and maybe that's what I was trying to get with with Pia as well. Um, you know, the fact that, that sex of any kind comes with baggage for Cersei is, it shouldn't be that surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's valid. It's a valid point you make. Yep. All right. Uh, and how great that she's turning out to be as crappy a leader as she thought Robert was. So good job, Cersei. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the bu- this bundling of the, of the brawn thing just... You have to be able to read people. Yeah. What do you expect? And, yeah. The Stokeworths, I mean, as readers, we can see the Stokeworths as nothing but bumbling bumbling buffoons from Game of Thrones. I mean, from the first book. Mm-hmm. And why she can't see that this is going to end poorly, I don't understand. Yeah, it's it's definitely a pattern with her, right? Uh, yeah. She she puts Giles Rosby in place on the small council, Orton Merriweather, uh, Harris Swift, and then she sits and complains about all of them, yeah. how terrible they are, and how much yeah. and how worthless they are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It it is fun though being in Cersei's head uh, oh, totally. a little bit. It's um, a hoot. Yeah, uh, you know, just her refusal to help. Marjorie and and how much joy she gets out of just being able to say no to her is just it's delicious. So she is able to feel some sort of joy. Yeah, yeah. In withholding any in, sort of support. Yeah, for the Tyrells. In causing <laughs> Tyrell pain, she gets joy. Um yeah. I, it's 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 a fun ride in her head, but I just I think I said this the last time we had a chapter of hers. I can't take it for very long. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's true. So on that note, let me ask you if you know, I, I did some studying into it and couldn't find a definitive answer. Who has the uh, the authority there? Is it the queen herself or the queen regent? Marjorie seems to be almost kind of demanding that Cersei act, but does Marjorie, have, as the queen, have the ability to just say, no, we're doing this? I thought, it appears Tom, she doesn't. I thought, I thought until Tommen came of age that Cersei had all the power. So she's, she, this makes me, because I I think that, yeah, I think we're, I'm I'm smelling what you're stepping in here. So Cersei as the queen regent speaks for the king and has the authority to act for the king, who in turn has authority over the queen. So because Queen Marjorie doesn't supersede Queen Tommen or King Tommen, she also doesn't supersede Cersei. Right. I think so, and if there were, uh, if there was a powerful hand in place, you might get some more conflict there. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, you know, there isn't. So, yeah, I think Cersei's just got run of the roost here. Um, you know, she she even mentions that uh, in one of her earlier POVs 
um, when she's she, she doesn't say it out loud, but we're, we've got her inner monologue, and she's saying, you know, she can't believe Marjorie is coming. She's waited so long for this, and now Marjorie shows up and thinks she's gonna, you know, shorten her time in control. You know, mm-hmm. like she's earned. This is her time to be in charge. It's my time down here. Goonies, <laughs> Goonies, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I don't. That would make sense. Talking it through helped. So, thank yep. you. Yeah. Uh, so another instance where maybe the combined reread takes out some of the suspense. Um, here they talk about Davo Seaworth being dead. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember how I felt because, of course, I read A Feast for Crows first, and this is a feast chapter. Um, if I really felt like Davos was dead or if I was skeptical about it, and I don't remember. Um, but we already know, reading in this order, that Davos is alive. So yep. maybe if you're into it for the suspense thing and the no spoilers, this is maybe a tick against the feast dance reading order. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm at first when people would ask me, what do I do? Do I read a feast? Do I read feast then dance? Or do I read it in the combined order? I think I'm erring more and more on the side of read them in the release order first. And then on rereads, do it this feast dance way. You pick up a lot, but I don't know. Do you have an opinion yeah. either way? No, I th- I think I'm coming, I'm coming online with, with what you, with what you're laying down. I mean, for the specific example, uh, Again, I can't profess to know what I thought four years ago, when I five years ago, whenever it was when I read this the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, when did when did Dance come out? Two thousand ten. Two thousand. Or was twelve? Twelve, I think. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, five years ago. I can't pretend to remember what I read five years ago for the first time, but and what I felt. But I think I felt cheated. It's like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> you can't just. This is a POV guy. This is a guy I love. You can't just kill him without telling me how or why. I think I felt cheated. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It, it would have... I don't know I don't know that I would have felt suspense. I would have felt cheated. Mm-hmm. But in general, I, I think I'm coming down where you are, which is... Yeah, read them in the in the original order and then on subsequent reads if you want to do, do this, which I, I am enjoying quite a bit. I am too. Um, but yeah but it might have taken a little bit of the excitement out of some reveals yeah uh had i read it this way at the beginning yeah agreed yeah it's kind of like watching uh the prequels first in star wars and you know all along that darth vader is luke's father yeah takes some of the fun out of it yeah and and we are both i think i don't actually i don't know if you're a staunch supporter i am a staunch supporter of the uh of the uh, oh geez, what's the order called? Machete, machete order. order. Oh yeah, the we machete talked about order. This. I, yeah, I'm a huge I think machete talked, order fan. Yeah. yeah, I think we've talked about this on the cast. Google yeah. machete order for if you're going to watch Star Wars anytime soon, and uh, give that a shot. Yeah. It's fun. Uh, Reavers do not come in such strength. It reminded me of Lord of the Rings. It is an army bred for a single purpose: to destroy <laughs> the world of men. Uh, this reaving army is not a reaving army at all, right? It's a conquering force. Yeah, this is an invasion force. A con- yeah, a conquering force. Yeah. Absolutely right. Can we point out that uh, Willis was right about how the Ironborn attacked? He was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I tried to make that point in the notes about, you know, 
we know firsthand what happened, and so we know Willis's letter is correct, and anyone anyone casting aspersions to the letter just seem like buffoons to us as the right. reader, yeah. uh, which is kind of fun. Of course. No. I, I will admit that during your summary, I accidentally unplugged my uh, mic cable, and it oh. took a second for it to come back online, so it was probably during those 20 seconds or so that I didn't catch what you'd said there. So. Ah. My apologies. Oh, that's fine. Um, I think that's about all I've got. Uh, too bad Olena wasn't around to uh, help make sure Loris didn't make this decision. <laughs> Have fun storming the castle. Yeah, that's all I can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thirtieth anniversary or something for that movie. I I saw online. Is that right? Oh, that that would probably make sense. Yeah. <clears throat> I've been watching it my whole life, so yeah. All right, uh, I'm ready to move on. You ready to move on? You know, we have got a buttload of stuff to talk about on Davos After Dark, and it oh, is we a do. weeknight, so let's get to it, man, because I want to yeah, hit we, it all. We got one more Ask the Fingers real quick. Okay. Uh, I think it can be. If you could talk to anyone living or dead, celeb or not, who would it be and why? This came from B Word, our friend Beth. Yeah. You want me to go first? Because I'm going to cheat. <laughs> go, go ahead. So, <clears throat> to me, having a talk with somebody who I don't really know that well, like yeah. you, I can sit there and talk with you forever. Yeah. But just kind of my introverted nature, nothing like sounds more undesirable to me. It's like... <laughs> Like at my like at my work, for example, they're doing these they just did this huge raffle for charity thing and one of the or auction. And one of the things that they auctioned off was a weekend ski trip with the CEO of our company. Just okay, like, please don't win, please don't win, please like, don't win. This, why would I pay money to go spend time with a guy I don't even know? <clears throat> but anyways, so just talking to one guy, even like someone who's a personal hero, just sounds just sounds like so much work to me. So, sorry, B-word, but I'm going to cheat a little bit. What does sound amazing to me, though, would be to gather all of my favorite songwriters in a room and just sit and listen to them talk about mm -hmm. what inspires them, what they do. So guys like Dave Matthews, um, Craig Finn from The Hold Steady, who you guys know I, that I love, uh, Bob Dylan, Billy Joel, um, Miles Davis, uh, Bill Evans, just get all these guys together, John Mayer even, <clears throat> and just have them sit in a circle and just talk to each other. I would love, I don't even need to participate in the conversation, but that would be my dream come true. It would just be to listen to them, talk about what inspires them and why they do and how they get inspired to do what they do. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, that's a total cheat answer, but, but it, it was totally still is. fun. It was totally still fun. Is. So if, if I had to pick one of them, yeah, Dave Matthews. But. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I get what you're saying. We, we've talked a little bit before about like comic cons and like how, how it's a little weird for me to like, even though I admit these people are awesome and amazing at what they do oh, and, absolutely. and I admire them. It's a little weird for me to like pay to take a picture or like pay to shake their hand it's just it feels weird i so like yeah it's it's a strange thing to to want to want to have a conversation with somebody like that in, in that way that you don't know anything about or you know but so my answer is uh my answer 
my answer tells a lot about me, I guess. Uh, it's Jesus, isn't it? It's, it's Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> it is. It's Jesus. Uh, I'd like to sit down with the guy and pick his brain and, and try to glean some information that the world heretofore <laughs> doesn't have and, uh, and shed some light on some things. One way or the other. I could be convinced by the guy uh, if, if he lays it all out for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's Jesus or a similar mystery that it means a whole lot less to the world, but, but means a fair bit to me, uh, William Shakespeare. And, and by that, I don't mean necessarily William Shakespeare. I mean, the clause would be, send Whoever me the guy is, who yeah. wrote all of, actually wrote all these plays. If that be the word guys or guys, yeah. yeah, send them to me <clears throat> and, uh, let me, let me see this mystery as well and learn some. You know, and then after the mystery's uncovered, I can just chat with the bard for a bit. That just shows so, how much I know you by now, man. I was like, I bet Scott's <laughs> going to say Shakespeare. and then, But I distinctly thought, I distinctly thought it would be so funny if he said, like, Jesus or something. Oh, it's sad how, how transparent I am. Or, uh, I guess, just how well you know me now. It's we just know for, each other. Good for you. Um, yeah, as long as, you know, Jesus turned some water into wine for you, you'd be all about that that chat right uh yeah i mean i'd be all about it anyway (laughs) i know all right cool all right well it is time for some davosian after the dark uh thanks everybody for joining us we're now going to spoil the crap out of lots of stuff so if you don't want to be spoiled uh just stop listening now and join us in three weeks for our next feast with dragons episode we're going to jump into davos after dark right now Davos after dark. Uh, as you said, we have a lot. Let's let's just start right with uh, with one of your favorite topics. Oh boy, Mance Rhaegar. <laughs> uh, so just reading this, just narratively to me, mm-hmm. uh, this fight just makes a lot more sense if Mance Rhaegar is true. Right. Yeah. Rattleshirt doesn't bring it doesn't bring anything to the table other than just. I'm enraged and hate John. Mance Rhaegar, it could be about training. It could be about learning about, you know, your son. It could be about, I don't, just all these, all these really fun things rather than just this guy's big and strong. Yeah. And if you, if you go back and read the Jon Snow interactions with Mance from that perspective, it's awfully interesting, and you do get that feeling, if it is true, that Mance is feeling him out, you know? Is this yeah. boy that we put, that I'm putting all my trust in, is he, is he it? Does my son got what, it, what he needs to have, you know? Yeah. Is he that prince that was promised? And this, this is a small example of how that could be, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he all, you know, it's also been noted lots of times, like, he, take, he takes him in and trusts him very quickly. Sure. More quickly than he should have, mm-hmm. and but but then you know the, uh, the counterpoint is he does send him away to the wall <laughs> to to climb instead of keeping him by him, which is maybe it's another test or maybe he I don't know maybe he knows that the assault on the wall isn't going to go well and so try to keep him to out get of him harm's way or that's, yeah that's where I've always fallen on that is he wants to get him over the wall and to safety yeah. not that climbing the wall is super safe either sure so. sure but. Doesn't have anyway, a lot of options. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one option is keep him by you. Uh, you know, nobody's coming down off the wall to come raid through them. Um, but, but you might but have anyway. someone up coming behind you. 
with, with ice swords and stuff. That's true. <clears throat> yeah, that's true. You're right. He he didn't have a you know a boatload of options. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, I'm I'm coming around a little bit on Mance Rhaegar. I I still don't think I believe it. But there's not narratively, it's more evidence. fun. Yeah, there's not enough. There's certainly not enough. And I've looked at this thing forward and backwards, and there's a lot of theories out there that you can really dig in and find a lot of good stuff on and make some really reasonable conclusions, come to some really reasonable conclusions. Mance Rhaegar, you simply can't. It's fun. There's little bits that make you go, ooh, that's tantalizing, but you can't come to any, you know, conclusive conclusions. (laughs) Right. Uh, It's Mance Rhaegar, but it's awfully fun. Yeah. Uh, Do you want, let's, let's talk, uh, the tricks Mel played on John and Ghost because I don't know sure. what you're talking about. Um, I will be completely honest, and and I love doing this anyways, and I know you do too. Giving credit where credit is due to uh, our friends out there. Um, this I totally uh, got enlightened by through Radio Westeros, mm-hmm. um, and their episode on Melisandre which is like one of their like third or fourth episodes that they ever did. And it's fun to listen to their, to their recent episodes and then go back and listen to their old ones. And, you know, I thought the first time I heard them, do they have a fire alarm going off in the background? No, there was no fire smoke detector (laughs) beeping, but they were already high quality, but you see just how far old radio Westeros has come in terms of production quality. It was good back then. um, But it's fantastic now in comparison. Yeah. So, uh, but Yolk Boy and Lady Gwen uh, hearken back to Mel's chest of powders and potions and mm-hmm. all of those different things that she uses and she always keeps on her person. Um, uh, <clears throat> so we go back to, you, you mentioned it in the main portion of the cast where Ghost, um, where John skin changes into Ghost really quick. Right, mm-hmm. and that's when he picks up that Melisandre is there. The night came mm-hmm. alive with a thousand smells, and so John's skin changing helped him pick up what Melisandre was putting out, um, which they postulate could have been some sort of potion or powder or something that called Ghost's attention. When he turns, he sees a greet. Right? Yes. And John is awfully confused for a minute. In fact, he talks about, like, how could I have imagined that she was a Greet at first there? Because there's just no way. They they're kind of look alike, but there's all these differences. And he goes and describes all the differences between Melisandre and Ygritte. One of the, the potion slash powders that Melisandre has, and she mentions this later in her POV chapter, is, is, is called Smoke for Lust. Mm-hmm. Meaning that maybe she was using that to kind of get John's attention and kind of draw him in a little bit. Interesting. Maybe saw through it. and Like an the... aphrodisiac. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, she says she made the word a song when she called Ghost's name. Uh, they postulate that that could have been some, one of the spells that Melisandre type likes to use. Mm. Um, and then the powder could have been on her fingers when he came up and smelled her fingers. And then all of a sudden he like shoved his nuzzle into her fingers and was like all over her and, and totally trusted her after that, that maybe that could have been some sort of powder that attracted. That would also explain why Melisandre, she does have a high tolerance to the cold, but maybe why she wasn't wearing gloves because she had, you know, some substance on her hand there. Mm. Uh, 
that helps create confusion in both John and Ghost's mind, or, or some sort of trust in Ghost, at least. But yeah, so that's cool. just a fun little thing that uh, Radio Westeros pointed out. That's great. Yeah. Cool stuff. Uh... All right. Uh, well, well, let's let's dive into Mel a little bit because we had to. I kind of asked an unfair question to you on the non-spoiler part of the cast, hmm. which you you definitely stepped around. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> but what the hell is she really after here? Sure. Like, does she see John as the as having royal blood, and that's why she's after him? Is she is she trying to make another shadow baby? With what specific purpose? What's she? What is she? What is her game here? What does she really want? She's not just horny; she wants some sort of power here. Mm-hmm. For for what? Uh, well, she trying to wake a dragon. Yeah, what you're asking. We know what her overall goal is, right? That she wants to defeat the others. Yep. Um, but what you're asking is, you know, what is what is she getting at in terms of means for arriving to that point, right? Yes, I mean, I'm what getting at what is she strategies? specifically after right now when she's asking John to go, you know, mm-hmm. drive down into her, create a baby of some kind, <laughs> or wake a dragon, or whatever it is. Make him feel her love. Yes. Uh, I don't know, man. Could a shadow baby have some sort of power over the others? I don't know. That's where she wants to get in the end, is to kill them. Um and if if he did take her up on it, would his actual power being, you know, like the most royal blood mm-hmm. just like actually overload her systems and cause an explosion? <laughs> I can't take it anymore. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we're it's all it's it's clearly speculation, so we'll move on. I just wanted to point out that like we were trying to play dumb. Uh but you know, there's a very real reason why she might think John is powerful. Yeah, she, uh, she looks into her fires and all she sees is snow. Yeah. She says so in her POV. So maybe she doesn't even know. She just knows that she keeps seeing John Snow. So maybe she really doesn't have a figured out purpose. She just knows that she keeps seeing him. She can't get him out of her fires and can't get him out of her fires. And he's got to do something for her, you know, like there's something there. Yeah. Maybe she doesn't even know yet. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Let's move on to. Uh, you had n- note quick a quick take on goodbye, Lady Stokeworth. <laughs> Never see her again. She yeah. gone, man. Yeah. We hear of her, and uh, later on, um, Cersei does some sort of checkup on her. I don't remember exactly what the circumstances were. And Kyburn, but he, she essentially says, so we're sure that Stokeworth isn't going to say anything, right? And Kyburn's like, she's, she can't even feed herself anymore. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> That's awful. She won't be, she won't be saying anything. Oh, man. This, to me, is one of the more horrific parts, is that we, we don't know what is happening to these yeah. women that Cersei is giving to Kyburn. Yeah. And that is just horrifying. I, I do not want to know. Like, you just keep your trap shut, Kyburn. Germ, do not take us down to those cellars, because I do not want to see what is happening. Yeah, I mean, it's it feels like necromancy. Uh, 
it's interesting. Just today, I was I was in a, a thread on the Song of Ice and Fire book club on Facebook, which um, which Beth pointed us to recently, and uh, they were talking about about whites and reanimation and things like that. And like uh, one of the moderators of the group just said, you know, the, I think the magic's all the same. It just depends on how you're using it, and mm-hmm. the Kyburn is just you know he was trained with Marwyn the mage, and you know he's got access to knowledge, and he's just much like the religious people is reanimating corpses and they're they're whites basically um you know he's maybe not as advanced in his knowledge or whatever but um kind of an interesting idea yeah it's an interesting take yeah he called uh, at one point he calls them puppeteers did you catch that the puppeteers are all used up was hmm. this was this the puppeteers of the uh the, the show, the Lions uh, Stag Show, is that what he's referring to? Uh, yeah, I would believe so. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, let's move on. Lots of other stuff. Grand Northern Conspiracy. Okay. Okay. So I already, I already spoiled a little. I don't know that it was spoiling, but I, I kind of laid out how I feel about Wyman. Yeah. Uh, and his. You did purity. it in a way that didn't spoil. Did I? Okay, I, I hope so. Um, I don't know. I mean, so I, I I laid my opinion out there a little bit. Do you wanna do you wanna weigh in on, on your end? Um, well, the Grand Northern Conspiracy as a whole is just the idea that nearly every Northern house yeah. is kind of plotting together to put the Starks back in power, and the way they're going to do that is kind of play Stannis and Roose Bolton against each other. Uh, with the phrase kind of being caught in the middle too, all of them, you know, dying and then uh, being able to get, you know, back up on top with Starks. Um, and, and specifically actually who is Jon Snow. Yep. There you go. And, and not, not Rickon, um, you know, which is, which is interesting. Why, why, why Wyman is asking for Rickon. Mm-hmm. Um, because, because the, I mean, who knows really what it is, but the grand world of conspiracy as it's written indicates that they're, you know, they're, they're yeah, all John in Snow. for John. Yeah. Right. Now, if this will that you mentioned wanting to have some, some knowledge about in your, your ask the fingers mm-hmm. response, if it says my heirs are, you know, and then gives a list, uh, you know, Rickon still would be ahead of John. Yeah. Uh, but I, I have no. Rob has no reason to believe they're alive, and I have no reason to believe he would do that. He would just say, "No, my heir is John." Mm-hmm. So he even he even says conclusively to Cat, I think in that chapter when he's talking to her about naming John heir, he's like, "Mom, Bran and Rick Bran and are, dead. are dead. Yeah, they're dead." Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I so I imagine he did uh, just say that. In which case, yeah, I think his word as king would supersede even his own trueborn brothers if he says, I don't care about my brothers, this guy's my heir. Mm-hmm. Like, if it hadn't been John, if he'd have just said, I don't care about my brothers, Mage Mormont is my heir. Like, would that stand up? Well, if I think they found Rickon? The key is not only in <clears throat> naming an heir, but in legitimizing Jon Snow, yes, too. Because both. if he's yeah. legitimized... Then now he is the heir. He yeah, is... Right officially the heir being older than Rickon. So there, right. I think that needs to happen as well. Yeah, true. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. 
But uh, uh, did we? Sorry, I interrupted you when you're in the middle of the theory. Did, was no. there more you wanted to say in general about the theory? No, I I think that that is the uh, that is the case, and I I think it's a very compelling theory. I think the evidence is well laid out. I went and you can find it online if you Google Grand Northern Conspiracy, and I printed it out so I could have like a reference copy, and it's solid. It's long, dozen pages at least. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Probably more like twenty actually, and uh, there's some compelling reasons. There's some reaches that I go, eh, but Several. there's there's more yeah. compelling I think, uh, you know, points that are brought up than there are reaches enough yeah. to that I I think I. I'm behind it. The interesting thing to me, of course, is that if RLJ, it might not matter what these northern yes. lords are conspiring to do because John might turn it down anyways. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. So uh, I'm awfully interested in finding out what happens there. Yeah. I, yeah. So the interesting thing, we kind of, again, skated through it in the main portion of the cast with Wyman and asking for Rickon. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a weird thing. Yeah, it's kind of redundant. It it does feel redundant, uh, and it, it feels maybe like a bit of a smokescreen, like to take the attention away mm-hmm. from from John. But at the same time, like who's he taking the attention away from? Just Davos. Davos doesn't he doesn't know anything about this stuff. Like I don't think he's the one you need to distract. Um, but but what I was saying about how carefully he's he's measured everything. He's, what he says is, bring me my, bring me the heir, bring me yeah. my liege lord. He never says the word Rickon. Right. And that's cleverly worded if he knows what that letter says. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Grand Royal Conspiracy outlines several ways in which he could actually know that information. Um, and, uh, well, maybe it's just one way, but uh, they outlined that, that Wyman very well could know that information. And, yeah. and if he does know that information, then this Rickon thing is really just a smokescreen and he won't actually owe Stannis anything when Rickon shows up. Mm-hmm. Um, still, yeah. though, so so why send Davos? Well, uh, uh, they also, the Grand Northern Conspiracy also puts forth that maybe they're trying to really solidify Stark rule again by giving Jon Snow an immediate heir. Right. Which would be so, Rickon. Right. But if, but if you're going on the conspiracy theory of they're trying to amass power for themselves, they would have no motivation to do that. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's either an errand to get Davos out of the way and delay him for a bit, in which case, if that's what they wanted, they really could have just killed him. Um, or it's, or they, they're they legitimately trying to bring the Starks back. And, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, sorry, I interrupted. Well, I, no, I, I mean, I think that was the main point I was trying to make. Okay. Uh, just came to me is that maybe they figure Davos is going to eventually make it back to Stannis and the smokescreen could be for that, right? If Davos believes that the North is trying to get Rickon back in Winterfell, that takes attention off of Jon for, uh, for Stannis. Know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. If Rickon's like, the, or Davos is like, this is their plan, you know, they just want to have a start back in Winterfell, so I got Rickon for them, so they're all good now. Yeah, Stannis has no idea, which but I don't know our... if he would, anyways. So, as, as by far the end as he it... knows, he John's going to be at the wall. Yeah. Sorry. Well, by the end of a Dance with Dragons, Wyman is acting without knowledge of Rickon anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and yet is is acting in a way that is directly 
the flying in the face of the Boltons. Yeah, he's like kamikaze. So he's like... yeah, yeah, he's kamikaze. Exactly. Yeah, he's kind of like the the Northern Hill Clans that are like, this is my last winter. Let's armor up and go take out some some Boltons. Yeah. Um, he's just kind of like, all right, let's do it. My heir is back at home. I'm uh, I'm ready to fight some frays. The mummer's farce is done. I'm going out with the bang. The GNC talks about that an awful lot. Yeah. Yeah, and and he doesn't have any confirmation of Rickon either way. So he's kind of he's kind of just going for it regardless. Uh huh. So again, it feels like it feels noble to me. He's he's putting his cards out there whether Rickon shows up or not. But he's hoping Rickon shows up just because he hopes Rickon gets saved. That's, That's the way point. I feel about it. Yep. But maybe I'm missing something. Maybe we all are. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, enough on Granola Conspiracy. If you haven't read it, go read it. It is super long. You'll need an hour. I mean, you'll need some time. <laughs> it, it takes some time. And it's uh, it, it doesn't just stick with the North. It talks about uh, at River Run and what they're doing uh, with Blackfish and... The people that uh, took the black and sending them up to the north to the wall. The Brotherhood um, without banners. The Brotherhood without banners. That they're doing, yeah, with Cat and how she, you know, maybe Cat has, with being undead, Cat now has uh, moved past her hatred of John and is now, you know, actively helping. Goes into the hood, hooded man bit a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 a very extensive look at lots of parties and how they may be. It reaches in places, but how it may be. Um, really going down, and it's yeah. uh, it's really cool. I'm sure everyone that's listening to this has read it, but it's great. Go do it if you haven't. Agreed. Uh, you want to talk about uh, Lancel, Jamie, and Cersei triangle? You know, after I put it in there, I really yeah. don't know that there's a ton to say. I think yeah. I feel like this was it. This is the separation. This was the final wedge between Jamie and Cersei. Um, the next real interaction we get of Jamie and Cersei is when Cersei sends Jamie the letter to help, and Jamie throws it in the fire. Yeah. So. Yeah, it, it's almost to me like he's he's already moved on. Mm-hmm. This is this is the final information that lets him be at ease with having kind of be at on. peace. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Good point. Uh, all right, then we, I think we only had one more thing, and to be honest, I might have left it out, if not uh, for your tweet earlier today that indicated <laughs> you were thinking about it. Uh, Arane Waters, <laughs> what uh, you're you're all in on the in the bathtub on Arane Waters? <laughs> no, it's it's not even that so much. Is that I hadn't really given him a second thought yet, and yeah. it was actually because of you sticking him in our notes here that I went. Maybe I should dig into this guy a little bit more. And yeah. uh, the reason I used the gif I did on that tweet that I sent out of a guy diving into a bathtub is that, yeah, I'm diving into Arane Waters, but there's not a lot to dive into. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, there isn't, there isn't much. Uh, one thing we do know, which uh, super spoiler wins a winter stuff here, right, is mm-hmm. uh, one of the vis- visions that the girl from House Toland, whose name I always forget, Falana um, or something like that. Something. Uh, one of the things she indicates is that he is often, I think, the Stepstones area with, with the ships. Pirating. Um, yeah, right, yeah. pirating. Um, but, you know, Arian Waters, if, if you don't know, it's a bastard name, but he is the bastard of Driftmark. He is a Valerion. Uh, uh-huh. Valerion, right? Yep. Um, and so he has, 
he has somewhat, if not very, direct ties to Targaryen rule. Uh-huh. The Valerians are one of the few uh, remaining uh, kind of descendants of Valerians, and uh, you know he might have a lot of interest in supporting a Danny or an Aegon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's he could be waiting to support Danny. He could be waiting to support Aegon. He could want Dragonstone. Um, one of the initial things that I thought of is that maybe he's in with the Tyrells. Oh. Uh, we do get a little hint. Um, he, there's one where he's he's kind of flirting with one of Marjorie's lady-in-waiting. I think it was like Eleanor or something. They have a little flirty moment at one of the weddings, I think it was. <laughs> That's, uh, um, it could be nothing, but it is called out in the text. Uh, that maybe he is kind of in league with the Tyrells to bring Cersei down and play a small part in it. Maybe he's not a huge player in it, but this whole idea of, you know, if you can help us, um, we'll give you, you, you'll get some sort of kickback in return. And maybe the kickback is just something like Dragonstone, you know, with mm-hmm. him having some of that Targaryen stuff in him that, you know, once we get Dragonstone back, it's all yours, Arain. And he's just waiting now in the Stepstones for the Tyrells to finish their overthrow of Cersei before he can move in and take what oh. they've promised him. You know what I mean? Yeah. So he's like, oh, well, I'm out here. I guess I'll take some shit. I did my part. You know, I got these ships built. Uh, it's mentioned in, I think, maybe just the previous Cersei chapter, maybe one more, that he he names all the captains. He doesn't allow former Blackwater veteran captains to captain his ships. He names mm. the captains, so they're his guys. You yep. know what I mean? People that he can command. Um, and... Remember that Cersei gets the news of Loras taking Dragonstone only from Arain Waters in the next chapter. Oh, I didn't remember that. And he gives it to her and her alone, meaning that after he ditches town, if Loras comes back safe and sound from Dragonstone, or reveals himself as never having taken the wounds that he took, uh, Cersei has no one to back up her statement that he'd been injured. So, yeah, yeah, just helps in bringing her down. Wasn't, wasn't, I don't remember, I, I remember this, I feel like, from somewhere, but I, I, I don't know where. The the ships that Arain Waters took, the three three ships that he took to Storm Dragonstone, mostly, I mean, the captains may be, like you said, but most of the men are Lannister men, are they not? I believe so. Yeah. So he, it's a little bit of, a little bit of a treacherous kind of, deal he's doing if he's playing false because he's surrounded with men that you know may not look too kindly on the deception but yeah well, he maybe he offloads them on dragonstone and their yeah, prisoners yeah. or something you know yeah yep possible who knows it all it all depends on what actually happened at dragonstone which he you could mean be telling we have to truth. wait for the books is what you're saying yeah. fine maybe that's our answer to tana about what we're looking forward to is what really happened at dragonstone yeah all right. Well, uh, unless you got anything else on RN Waters, let's let's call it a night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's do it, buddy. Uh, all right. Time to sign off. You got something? I do. Um, this is just a, a fun thing from John. I'm just I really like John's stuff. So so this is just uh, Matt signing off with a quote from John Snow. Not my strongest sign off, but it snuck out to me. Stuck out to me in this chapter. Or he says it should not matter to him which king emerged triumphant, but somehow it did. Mm. Yep. That's how it is for me in these books, too. 
doesn't matter for me how it ends, but it does at the same time. <laughs> yes. All right, mine is a, it's a lengthy sign-off, uh, and it is all about my love for, for Wyman Mandeley and a, a Shakespeare comparison here, so I'll just read it. So in this loose behavior I throw off and pay the debt I never promised, by how much better than my word I am, by so much shall I falsify men's hopes, and like bright metal on a sullen ground, my reformation glittering o'er my fault shall show more goodly and attract more eyes than that which hath no foil to set it off. I'll so offend to make offense a skill, redeeming time when men think least I will. I'll so offend... What was that? I'll so offend... I'll so offend to make offense a skill. I love that. Redeeming time when men think least I will. Very good. Yep. Okay. All right. Sleep tight, scatty. Yeah, you too. Have a good Talk one, Blood later. Riders. See you. Thanks, Galasar. Bye. I can make you happy, make your dreams come true. There's nothing that I would not do. Go to the ends of the earth for you. To Or this is my last one, the song, uh, song by a band called Sister Hazel, song called Everybody. Um, like a junkie to a rush, I'll trade my mama for your touch. Oh, wait, that might just be too much, but I'll do anything but that. Looking for some action. It's why I'm rapping. Sorry, Coolio. Um, remember that guy? I'm barely. Uh, <laughs> he, she talks about how or she's sitting there and she's like, it's not in that song. It's a different one. Yes. He has more songs than just that one. Not one of my favorites. I couldn't give you a top 10 playlist of Coolio. Sorry. I won't ask for it. All right. I knew you were thinking about it. I don't, I don't want it. I'm looking for some action, that's where I'm rapping. I got a ship, you can ride, but I'm the captain. So dip your chicken dinner in the barbecue fork. Just make sure you got a lot of room in your trunk. I'm a Hey Blood Riders, Matt here. Hope you had a great time listening tonight. We had some fun songs, and I just wanted to give credit where credit's due. First of all, of course, I Want You, which is a Bob Dylan song off of his uh Pinnacle album, Blonde on Blonde. That's from 1966. And going back not quite so far, we had, yes, a Coolio song. You will never, well, you shouldn't say never. You will most likely never hear another Coolio song on this podcast, mostly because I don't know any others besides Gangsta's Paradise. But this one's called Dial a Jam. It's a Coolio featuring, featuring the 40 Thieves. It's off the Jerky Boys soundtrack which I heard as a kid, and I fell in love with this song. I rediscovered it not long ago, and it's just a good 90s hip-hop song. Uh, Finally, To Make You Feel My Love. Scad mentioned the Billy Joel in Jest With Me, so I had to include that version. Uh, That version of To Make You Feel My Love is, again, by Billy Joel. It It was a single not released on any album other than his uh, Greatest Hits Volume 3, which came out in about 97. Fun story about that, that is the song that got me into Bob Dylan. I was about 12 years old in 97, and I loved Billy Joel. When this song came out, I got the single, and I was reading through the liner notes. I love, and I still am fascinated by liner notes. 
uh, and albums, and I miss those. That's one thing I miss the most about CDs is looking through the little booklets. And I saw that the song wasn't written by him. It was written by B. Dylan, which, you know, was Bob Dylan. And uh, I liked it so much I decided to check him out. And I didn't love it at first. You know, at first blush, uh, Bob Dylan doesn't exactly appeal to the 12-year-old mind. But uh, with time, he quickly grew on me into one of the most influential artists in my life, certainly. But anyways, enough of me. Hope you enjoyed uh, episode 63. I know Scad and I really enjoyed giving it to you. And we will catch you on the flippity. See you guys. Thank you.